Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to the Boyce of Reason podcast. Today's guest, well, there are two of them, so today's guests are Mike Nina and James Lindsay. James Lindsay is an author and provocateur. Well, he's not really a provocateur, but some of his opinions and statements are considered to be provocative, especially to people who adhere to postmodern critical theory intersectional doctrine. He also is the main writer of newdiscourses.com and is working on an extensive social justice dictionary, which goes through and defines how all of those terms operate within a nexus of values. Mike Nina is a filmmaker who has been working on projects similar to mine, trying to detail how critical theory and postmodernism actually works itself out once people believe it and internalize it and then perform it such as we saw at the Evergreen State College in 2017, and now, surprisingly, are seeing all around us. This discussion, we talk about the ideas that are animating some of the claims being made by anti-racist pedagogy pushers in academia, in the media, and in other businesses and institutions. If you are worried about what's happening or confused about what people are saying now about very big claims about you being a racist or racism being everywhere, well, there is a sense behind that. And that's kind of what we try to suss out and make sense of. So without further ado, here are a couple of my best bros in the media sphere, James Lindsay and Mike Nina. I don't think conservatives have the luxury to be conservative anymore. I think when something like the internet comes along, then there is a maelstrom of change, a maelstrom of progression. And so to have some kind of conservative intuition is probably a good thing. I'm I'm progressive by nature, but my uh, conservative intuitions are going crazy in this maelstrom. And so I just want to hang on to some certain things while everything rushes towards change. Because if you don't hang on to what works and then have iterative change into something, you are just rushing off into mayhem and genocide and hunger. Like it's, it's you, a a progressive instinct works best when it's in some kind of iterative change um, on something that's good. If you agree that, that we live in this kind of hellscape, that they're trying to sell to everyone, then maybe kind of full-scale changes. If you're getting behind this full-scale change thing, this revolution that they're trying to um, push on every front, flip up every institution and uh, and change it from the ground up, then that's that's the that's the enterprise for you. But I happen to believe that there are things that work. Um, and right now, I'm hanging on for dear life in this maelstrom on uh, liberal liberal ethics and liberal principles, because I think that that's the thing that we, um, if we get rid of, we're in a lot of trouble, I, I, I think. I mean, you asked if, you know, it's reasonable to be wary of this. It's like, it's not reasonable to be wary of this. It's, it's sane and necessary, because what's happening is almost entirely divorced from reality. And I mean that. It is almost entirely divorced from reality. So what's happening in in terms of the moral panic around racism, for example, is that millions of Americans and people around the world are now being confronted with this accusation that feels and sounds credible that they're racist, where they were pretty sure they weren't racist to begin with. 
I've had so many people email me in the last week saying something that, of course, critical theory would celebrate. They're saying, I've not thought about race this much in 40 years of life as I have in the last 14 days. So these are people who have been going through their lives every single day, not racist. I'm going to just say that, not racist, who all of a sudden have been confronted with this narrative that our entire country is racist, everybody in it is racist, unless they are uh, and I say unless they are subscribed to this ideology that's behind the movement, except that even people who are subscribed to it, unless they have a very, very narrow identity fact set of identity factors, uh, are also complicit now somehow in racism. You see Latinos, you see Asians, you see Arabs, you see Indians, you see Filipinos, you see these people prostrating themselves across the internet saying that they have to absolve themselves of their anti-blackness and they have to, to deal with the fact that they're complicit in white racism. They're not even white. Like this is this is actually fundamentally disconnected from reality. Now, you want to say, you know, there's some problems with the police, there's some police brutality, those issues that are, that there are actually real issues there. Fine. But the narrative is, we're being killed in the street every day by police. That's, that's actually just wrong. It's not even, it's like, it's so far from true that there's there's nothing to be said about it. And then when people say, but, but for example, there were nine black unarmed black people killed by police in 2019. As a mathematician, I know there were 365 days in 2019. There were nine people killed. That doesn't work. That can't possibly be one every day. That's not even one every month. And so you hear this and then you think, what in the world are these people talking about? And they say, oh, well, my lived experience is that it feels like we're being killed every day. So we're being pushed into a crazy revolution to remake all of our institutions. Our corporations are bending over to our, our academies are bending over to you have open coups taking place within most of our left wing media at the mainstream level. They're flipping over, they're firing people. They're, they're literally doing struggle sessions on people who tweeted the wrong thing. Even if it's like, you know, maybe we should have cops, you know, something pretty reasonable <laughs> by almost all standards and by all standards. In fact, and all of a sudden, like this is what, what what's happening based on people feeling, claiming to feel an experience that has no connection to reality whatsoever, hmm. literally none. Mm-hmm. So yes, you should be wary of this. <laughs> you should be pretty freaked out by this. All right, that was my question. I, I was uh, unfortunately muted for all the interesting questions that I did ask, but you guys are, are footing the bill here. Uh, it, it just it it's so fabulously insane. It's so over the top, like how these coups are happening. Coup de Ross is what I'm thinking of it as that they are taking they, they're they're literally trying to force people to install people of a certain race and they're doing it openly. They're they're making lists. And and there's, there's something to be said about the reasonable people that are caught up in this, because I think a lot of people's intuitions um care harm intuitions have been parasitized to think that this stuff might be reasonable i think a lot of people's impulse um, a lot of good people's impulse who don't actually who haven't examined their underlying principles properly they kind of catch their principles like a flu i guess um they're looking at the landscape and intuiting toward 
some of some of this crazy stuff. So it does it does work on a moral intuition um, level where some people are going. Uh, there, there's a lot of apologetics for it, I guess, is what I'm seeing from from very reasonable people. Like they, they, there is this radical element of it, and then people are like, "Well, they can't actually be saying that. They must be saying something reasonable." So then they, they make sense of it in this middle ground kind of reasonable way, and then they perform apologetics for it. Um, I think that us three have done enough homework to realise that what lies underneath that is. Uh, one-way ticket to hell, I guess. It's, it's, it's something very, very ugly. And uh, I guess that, yeah, that's why we're all a little bit worried about what's going on at the moment. But it's there just, is something There is something to be said about the reasonable people. Like, there's a lot of reasonable people just getting drawn into this thing. And uh, if we're going to strategize about reaching the reasonable people, mm. and, 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 and I keep on trying to put myself in the place of somebody who's suspending their disbelief and, and going along with this story and thinking, well, mm. maybe it's time. Maybe, maybe what they are saying is a little bit overblown, and maybe the way they're acting is a little bit overblown, but this is a necessary issue, and it's, it's just kind of an expression. It's, it's, it's performance, and, and, and let's, ha- let's let them have their, their day in the sun, thinking about the protest, thinking about the activity, but then you have this, this entire, um, well, uh, well, it's not well researched, but you know, it's thoroughly developed in the academy set of ideas mm. that has been polished mm. and workshopped and think tanked yes. into yes. perfect, just perfect little um, pamphlets, brochures. You, you click on a button, Off and your your entire uh, company can now just learn this whole mantra of things. Yeah, and I don't know there, how do you combat that. How do you push against thing. that? See, that's the thing is. Um, you mentioned, you know, well-organized, blah, 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 well-funded also. Uh, one of the experiences that I had is this whole, you know, it started with the event, and then there were protests, and then there were riots, and then people started to lose their minds, and then people are like, praying to black people in the street, which was very odd to, to see. People are washing black people's feet, and, like, somehow this symbolic maneuver is going to absolve them of their original sin. They're actually using this religious language. And it's all escalated very quickly. And I started receiving these emails, people panicking. I've received literally thousands and thousands of emails from people panicking. And one of the categories of emails that I would say, some of this was corporate, but most of it was universities. And some of it was actually like government entities were sending me, look what my university just emailed to everybody. Look what my office just emailed to everybody. And it was really bizarre. I wish I had had the foresight to organize these things into a clean folder, because now I've had so many emails, I can't even find most of it anymore. But I was like, replying again and again. I was like, yeah, these say this, I've seen 200 of these. It's just changed the heading at the top. Somebody delivered a large amount of basically copy-paste information that you could put, you know, pick your favorite, you know, university, Evergreen State College, whatever, put their letterhead at the top, and boom, the verbiage is nearly identical from one to the next to the next to the next to the next. And that doesn't even start with these crazy um, infographics that are running around everywhere and the memes that are running around everywhere. Um, Not to mention, my brother's got a really big uh, Instagram account, and he started getting all these messages from people saying, hey, I wonder if you would lend your platform to this movement that we're putting together and had a little bit of links toward things that have, uh, that would send him to some ideological, ideologically sound, you know, sound doctrine, um, references. 
And so it's a complete and utter assault. Like yeah. they're going crazy. There's activists as far as the eye can see. And this is this is a thriving industry. That's the thing is that it's not just, well, it is people that are being recruited um, to do it on their own accord, but there, there's a lot of money in this. There's bricks and mortar. There's a lot of these 501c3c4s in America. You see a big spike in 2012. These, these are uh, non-profit entities and money's pouring into them. There's, there's, it's, a, it's an industry. It's a huge industry um, and a growth industry by the look of things because uh, then, then you've got all the people who are saying support um, let's support black people. Let's support black people. That's the that's the selling point. But then you watch the money, and then it, it goes into these organisations that are run by this, um, that have this this sound doctrine, this ideology. Their it's their engine. It's their engine underneath uh, what's going on here. Do you guys think that this is a unique uh, event? Like the the full the the first full scale pro, uh, worldwide proselytization of a of an ideology of a religion just all at once dumped upon the world from all different levels i mean maybe that's over i'm not sure it's dumped though like we we knew that it was we we smelt this many years ago right everyone figured everyone in this this little group of ours realized that there was something afoot um and so we've been doing a lot of research for over the past three years trying to figure this thing out and where it is and it's there's a lot of infrastructure um, something happened around 2010. I think I think uh, hmm. a few a few different factors came together at 2010, and then this thing has been growing ever since. And then it just needed that um, that push, right? That that one that one video that exploded it all into what we see today. Have we lost Jim? Uh, you kind of magically just clipped him out of existence. <laughs> <laughs> I think he'll come back. Are you talking about having um, problems with his internet? He might have just dropped out. All right. Well, he'll be back. So, okay. So, I I opened with just saying about how unreal it is that it's just, you kind of have to go along with it because it's just so insanely all over the place. And and it's very plausible with, I guess, privileged doctrine. It's it's very... uh, it's very seductive like like this is your privilege mm. and this is somebody else's oppression have what, what are your thoughts on like working against that or working through it did you have a moment when the the brain worm got into you and you had to excise it or um i wouldn't think so i knew something was wrong intuitively for a long long time like it looked it looked like an extension of the civil rights movement. And so you went along with it for, for a while. And then it was, hang on a sec, there's something wrong here. I'm going to actually look to see where this comes from and the principles that are underneath it. I kind of think of it, it's, it's, it, looks, it looks a lot like uh, left-wing principles and moral intuitions. I, I think of it kind of like cuckoo egg. Are you, are you familiar with a cuckoo? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell the story? It's a bird that goes around and finds a nest of a different species of bird and then plants its egg in there. And the egg looks enough like the other eggs in, in the nest for the, uh, the bird of the other species to nurture its young. And then you see this, if you actually, if you look it up, it's this horrific thing where you see these, this beautiful mother bird, smaller than, it's, than, it's, uh, than the cuckoo that it's raising. 
and the cuckoo gets rid of all the other eggs, gets all rid of all its other young, and the mother thinks it's um, it's her young, so she she feeds it, and then it's stealing the resources. Yeah. So that's what I kind of see it as in left wing in- institutions. It's this new ideology planted an egg that looked enough like uh, the moral intuitions everyone in those left-leaning institutions held mm-hmm. for them to nurture it and feed it. And it almost, it, it, it takes the resources of that institution. It steals the resources of that institution and then grows and grows and grows and grows. Yeah. And so I think that a lot of that, that's, that's how I see, that's how I see a lot of this going on because I've been monitoring a lot of institutions and how this thing moves through it. Um, and that's what it looks like to me, some kind of cuckoo egg situation. Mm. What, are, what do you think are some of the big differences between, uh, I guess, civil rights classic and civil rights uh, zombie style? So civil rights classic was, uh, I mean, you, it's, a, it's a cliche now for people of our mindset to say, uh, judge someone on the character of their content, not the color of their skin. And so identity is very much secondary to that, right? So you, you become equal by getting rid of the identity factors. This one, this one's changing. It's, 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 well, everything is so unfair that you have to look at my identity in order to raise me to equal. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's different on some very, very fundamental levels. Uh, and so it, it appeals to guilt. It appeals to guilt. And it very much points to differences in distributions and as proof of... Uh, racism or sexism or or you know homophobia rather than actually looking what might be going on going on there so these these aren't liberal these aren't liberal ethics these aren't liberal principles and liberal principles are the things that deliver that deliver equal outcomes i think that a lot of the civil rights gains if not all of them over the past um half century have been down to people people selling their let's equalize this or that on, on the basis of liberal universal ethics. And so that, that's the thing that's actually delivering, delivering the goods, right? It's delivering it. It's delivering the raise, rising equality that we actually see in our, in our culture. And this philosophy changes that whole thing. It gets rid of it. It's, it's a completely different way of looking at things. If you actually look at its, its underlying philosophy, we are, it's not about individuals. Individuals are gone in this philosophy. We are the playthings of the power gods to them. Um, and it, it's group on group. There's war built into this. It's, it's uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Do you want to say something, Jim? We, we yeah. lost it for a second there, man. Yeah. Inter- I'm advocating for liberal principles, and I, I figured out that that's, that's the key, right? Once you they figure are. out what liberal principles are, then you can save, save a left from this cuckoo egg that's been planted in our nest. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, liberal principles deliver a different kind of, of equality, if you want to say equality, than um, the kind that this, this ideology is pushing. And the liberal principles does deliver the equality of being able to 
to, to make make your stake in the world, right? They don't give you equality. They give you the opportunity to go be who you are. So while meritocracy, for example, is not perfect, held as an ideal, it means that you, the quality of your work and your efforts matter somehow and, in fact, can make the crucial difference. And that's really important to remember, especially we watch these schools trying to get rid of standardized testing right now. Um, standardized testing actually saves a lot of people, especially it turns out racial minorities, from discrimination because once you pass the test, you can't say, oh, well, this kid doesn't know what he's talking about. He passed the test. So those objective standards change things. So it gives people a different opportunity to do something. And like you said, this actually does flip that over. It tries to engineer the outcomes on, on the backside. We've seen in history how that works out, which is badly. Um, and like you said, most importantly, it utterly denies the individual. It, it denies the content of character. It denies the value of one's, the merits of one's work. And, and, and even the individual itself isn't considered to exist. The, the philosophy, if we can call it that, of this uh, critical race theory or of these other critical theories I call critical social justice. The the ideology itself says that the most important factor about somebody's identity is which social groups they belong to, and then that those social groups are stratified, meaning they have different levels of value in society, different levels of opportunity or access to resources. And so that imports what's called Marxian conflict theory which was Marx's view that the classes were in conflict with one another, not a kind of symbiotic organism where each class plays a role in a broader organism. And so it was instead that the, the proletariat were now in conflict with the capitalist class that was trying to keep them down and control them and exploit them in particular. So this conflict theory mentality tells people, look, you belong to social groups. Those are your races. Those races experience certain power dynamics in society. We're not going to say that there's an essential nature to be black or essential nature of being white or essential nature of being Asian. That's not true because they see everything as socially constructed. But there's an essential experience of power, being black in a white dominant society, being Asian in a white dominant society. And they don't care about other societies. The fact that like China is Chinese dominant doesn't matter to them. They're not even looking at that, right? They still even would say stuff about white dominance and how the Chinese dominance has imported white dominance because it's all they can see. So they have this idea that's, that you are an emissary of your group and you have this essential experience. So if you happen to be brown, Mike, or black, or, you know, whatever it happens to be, your theory says this is what your oppression should be like. We've had these voices tell us, you know, bell hooks, Kimberly Crenshaw, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. We've had, you know, special you can name revelation. A special revelation. We've had these voices tell us what that experience is. And then if you say, uh, that hasn't been my experience, really, they would say, if they're going full marks, they would say, well, you have a type of false consciousness. They might say you have internalized dominance. They might say you have internalized racism. They might go full cynical and say that you're self-motivated and that you're selling out for white approval. We've seen recently like Terry Crews got called a race traitor and a lot of other words that are really rude that mean race traitor uh, for saying that he thinks that we should be focusing on unity as opposed to division right now and racial division. And so you actually aren't allowed 
no matter what your race, no matter who, what your, if you want to look at identity through those lenses, race, gender, sex, you know, sexuality, and so on, you're not allowed to have a voice other than what the theory says. Mm -hmm. Because if you are disagreeing with it, if you have dominance, that's because you want to keep your dominance. You have a cynical self-interest or a type of willful ignorance or pernicious ignorance or active ignorance or white ignorance or something like this that prevents you from even, even even being able to see it. You have white comfort, so you don't want to have that disrupted. You don't want to become uncomfortable. You have white equilibrium that can't get broken down. You have white solidarity to your other whites. You have this whole idea that there's no way you could genuinely genuinely disagree. And if you happen to be one of these racial minorities that it speaks over and for, then you also have to toe the line or else you're selling out or else you're you're brainwashed by white society or you want white approval or so on. So Kanye puts on a, a, a MAGA hat and starts dancing around and saying, I think for myself, I think for myself. And Ta-Nehisi Coates, like the poet laureate, basically, of critical race theory, comes out and says, well, you're no longer black. It's like because and, and finally, 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 the 1619 Project woman, Nicole Hannah-Jones, told us why. I mean, if you've studied the theory, you know why. But she told us why. She tweeted it and then apparently realized, huh, don't tweet that. Don't say that part. Delete. And the tweet has been deleted. <laughs> so she said that there's too, too honest. Too honest. Yeah. There's a difference between being racially black and being politically black. And Kanye is not politically black, so he's not black. They just drop that modifier right off of there, just like they do with systemic racism is racism. Politically black is black. And then all of a sudden, I mean, you, you experience this. Yeah. I think pe people, anyone with color would experience this. It's the color of my skin goes darker or lighter, depend, depending on what, what's coming out of my mouth at any one time. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's seriously how, how it's. <laughs> a strange experience that people um, with color experience. It's it's something that happens because of this ideology. I want to. Sorry, talking with my mouth full, but well, let me jump in real quick. Then while your mouth is right, full, jump on. Jump just, on. Just add to that. Look, the number of social workers who have told me in a number of different states now that say if they run into you know a black or brown or whatever it happens to be not white person, and then they say you know, well, do you feel like racism contributed to your problem? And they say no. Then the social worker's job becomes to teach them how racism contributes yeah. to the problem. It's like, that's exactly what you're They're collecting, about. and that, that's what's happening in these fields. They're collecting evidence for the intersectional pyramid. It's like offerings to the intersectional pyramid. It's, it's finding, going out into the world, finding proof, and then bringing back the offerings to your, your idol. So the, the big thing that you touched on, um, Jim was that we, we can't miss is the objective standards in liberal ethics that have been changed to subjective standards. Right. So this is where a caste system starts to play in because the subject, like the more oppressed you are, the closer to truth you ha you are. So shut up and listen to a black person because they're speaking the truth. Everything else is just discourse. And so there are subjective standards that, that are starting to creep into the way our culture works. And the thing that's built in there is if you don't use objective standards, you don't have conflict resolution. So at some point, white right. people are gonna go, fuck it, I'm gonna play this thing to win. You know what I mean? So, it, and that's, that is a scary, scary, I think that Trump is probably a, uh, a knock on effect of white people saying, you know what, we have an identity too. 
Um, we're we're going to play this game that you're Snuff, by your yeah. rules, and then and then get together and try and win this thing. Many people, and it's not the whole Trump phenomenon, but there's sections of it, and so it's war. If you the the more people that pick this up, it's like your country is going to look like gangs of New York with just identity groups. You know what I mean? It's, it'll that's that's where it heads if you if you the further that this way of thinking spreads, and so. What liberal ethics doesn't have and why I think that the market value of this um, ideology went up so much um, when the internet hit was you've got liberal ethics are more or less a process, you would say, Jim. You would say it's more a process, I guess. And so it, it doesn't actually have a codified set of ethics. So it doesn't have a Bible. It's just it's just a conflict resolution system saying, hey, if, if you behave in this way, then we can outsource all our problems to the world. And there's some kind of res- uh, between everyone and they're all their all their conflicts. We will reach some kind of truth, but it doesn't have a codified set of ethics. And so what I think happened here, and so I've been playing with this a bit and uh, uh, with Jim, obviously, um, we've been talking about this behind the scenes for for a long, long time now, and we can start to peek our head out into the public and start speaking about it, I think. I think what intersectionality did is it created an external framework for morality. It's an enterprise to create an external framework for morality. And with remediating oppression based on identity being its core value. And so a theist, a theist, a a religious person is easy to talk to about this because they would understand that an external source of morality is God for them. That's where it comes from. And the Bible is the thing in between God and them. So they've got this codified set Oh, you know, something something set in stone that they can refer to for the morality. The morality is not coming from an internal place. So in terms of liberal ethics, it, it never had that. It never had that Bible thing. And so they've in the in the university, they've set out to create an external source of morality. And they've been codifying this thing for for decades now. And so they have their Bible. They have their Bible. And any theist would understand that an external source of morality that's not God is an idol. So I think the intersectional pyramid is an idol. And I know that this sounds all crazy, but I think that I could probably map this out um, in an academic way and defend it. I I will if if there are any uh, if there are any professors that are brave enough to recruit me with a scholarship, I'll map it out and and, and figure this out because I, I think it's true. I think they've figured out an external source of morality. They've codified it. They've created activist seminaries and there's enough people that are trained in sound doctrine now for <laughs> this evangelical event to happen when uh, when the Internet hit. Right. So this is actually really interesting because it connects us to like why are evangelical Christians, many of them, especially the most conservative ones and all these like left-wing liberal atheists like all of a sudden teaming up so if i were to say that that there is a kind of codified liberal ethic i mean a helen would have just like machine gunned you for that but <laughs> what i would say what i would say is that the, the the backbone of that is let's 
create a conflict resolution system that centers itself upon let's find finding the most objective standard possible and deferring to it. So in science, we, we say, you know what? You have your theory. I have my theory. Let's go do the experiment and let the best man win. And it doesn't even really matter who wins. It's just let's go do the experiment. And what reality tells us is what reality tells in, us. In effect, and, in, 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 to bring it back to what I'm saying, that's Spinoza's God. Sure, I'll, sure, I'll sure. bow to that, right? I'll bow to that. Yeah. Well, that would be the liberal, the liberal code of ethics and the liberal god, if you want. Yeah, to. yeah, but it's it's kind of always shifting. It's moving. It's not fixed like the intersectional pyramid. Well, anyway, it's, go it's, on, go on. The 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 next the next thing that it would do is is, is liberal law was de- was was devised the same way. It's like let's create a system of law that we agree upon by some mechanism. Maybe it's democracy, maybe it's represent representatives, whatever it is. Let's create a system of law and let's have this thing called rule of law where the law becomes the objective standard. Now we're not saying that this is the final law. This is a very uncomfortable place for yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, it's a moving thing. Because maybe we're wrong about the law, or maybe the circumstances of the world change. Maybe we invent the internet, and something's different, and now we need different laws. So let's have a rule of law, and we're going to play by the law, but we're also going to set up a system by which we can change the law. The problem is, is if you need a very fixed, objective sense of morality or, or, or principle, that's uncomfortable, because things can change. Now, where we join together when you have like liberal or left-wing atheists and very conservative right-wing evangelical Christians joining up is what you said. The evangelical Christians see God as objective truth, objective standards, right? And then the the liberal approach, I mean, philosophically, genuinely liberal approach sees either the law— realizing that it's a work in progress or the asking the question of reality through experiment that there are these other objective standards so there's an objective standard and an objective standard obviously they can disagree about the nature of god and objectivity and they can have these whole arguments and whatever is fine but what's radically different about the social justice or critical social justice ideology and critical theory ideologies that have taken on postmodernism in particular is that they are not they don't think there's an objective standard they think there are only subjective standards. And the, then once you, as you were saying, you know, caste system, once you fall into a subjective standard, you have to, the one thing that, they, that they're dead wrong about is that, that nature loves a hierarchy, man. They all There's always going to be a hierarchy. So when they go purely subjective, you need a subjective ranking system for that hierarchy. And what they decided upon, kind of in a very religious sense, is, well, I feel oppression Therefore, I am. The, I, I feel this. This is this is evil, and that's the thing where I'm going. That's a starting place for us to build a morality or a moral framework. Or as I would phrase it, you know, you as you were what you were saying is I would say that if you were to look from like, you know, we talk about oh well, let's get on a mountain and look down from five thousand feet, or let's get in an airplane and look down from thirty thousand feet. If I said let's look at the, at the idea of religion from the moon, that high up. I would say that a religion basically is a psycho or sociological structure that provides and enforces moral law, which is separate from secular law. And until we figured out secularism, they were mixed together and everything was was not so good. And then we figured out secularism. And now what they are building is a moral lawgiver in their canon, and that is the basically intersectional pyramid of oppression, which uh, Patricia Hill Collins named in her book black feminist thought she named it the matrix of domination 
and so they've created this thing. Now, if we want to compare again to to religion, and we want to talk about good and bad, there are like religions that look up, and then there are religions that look down, right? So religions that look up are looking up to God. They're holding themselves to a higher standard, and they tend to have the net effect primarily of creating better people trying to do better in the world and and good you know, on balance, many good effects. Religions that look down are obsessed with sin, they're obsessed with impurity, they're obsessed with demon infestation and witches and things like that. Calvinism had quite the spree of that in early American history, for example, and their witch hunts across Europe. Um, Religions that look down create destruction. And then when you take out anything like an objective standard, all that's left is creating destruction and caste systems and, and hierarchy and I mean, you can't we, – hmm. we're dodging an elephant in the room here, too, and then I'll shut up for a second and let everybody else say something. But, you know, abolish the police is the meme right now. And so everybody's like, if that happens, gangs will just run everything. And then they were like, no, it'll be fine, communities and blah, blah, blah. And then the next thing you know, a group in Seattle decides to take over several blocks on Capitol Hill – call it an autonomous zone or CHAZ or whatever the hell they're calling it now. And then within three days, you have a guy going around calling himself the warlord of the autonomous zone, and I am the police now. I am in charge now. It's a gang. A gang took over. The south side of Chicago ends up ejecting the police. What happens? Gangs are running the city within days. It's like that vacuum just gets filled. So it's utterly absurd to believe that and this is a very, I hate to say communist, because it's its communist in like this weird abstract sense, not the economic sense. But it's very—it's like there's this weird communist utopia, like, oh, we'll get rid of the authority and everything will be great. As though the authority <laughs> vacuum is not going to get filled by whoever the biggest jackass is or whoever so this has the is, biggest this gun. is inside their, their ideology. They think that the evil resides in the systems. And the systems that the were powerful created people by white Western that, yeah, the powerful people man. that created those systems. And so if you can retrain the privilege out of people and create equality, you won't have crime. It gets really, really weird. And it's there. It's all written down. It's like it's like uh, going through the layers of Scientology, right? Like you you're you're at the start of Scientology. This has been the journey for me. It's been the start of Scientology, you're talking about thetans and maybe past experiences and stuff like, yeah, okay, no worries. And then you go one step further, and then they're talking about something else that's kind of strange, and then they go one step further, and then all of a sudden you're on a ship and you're some kind of captain, and they're talking about Xenu and 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 uh, interplanetary galactic wars and shit. And then that's actually at the base of this, this cult that we're looking at, is the further you go in, you're like, hang on a sec. You have a different conception of human nature. You and blanks being blank slate, the blank slate conception of you, uh, human is is central to this. Let me um, define blank slate here because I'm not going to give the usual definition either. I'm going to say that blank slate means before humans ate from the tree of knowledge called the Enlightenment. Once we started to figure out how to do knowledge, once we started to actually find out truths about the world that have an objective standard behind them, that's when sin entered the world and the sin is oppression. That's when we we, we fell from the garden, which is this kind of ideal pre-oppression state, which is, of course, a farce, right? There, there were empires and brutal empires and terrible things well before the Enlightenment occurred. But there's this weird resentment within this entire ideology that 
I think is I think I've been trying to like how the hell did they get to this? And I know there's like the humanity side and the philosophy side where they're like resentful that science is encroaching on their turf, and the literary criticism side was pissed off that the humanities weren't getting the same you know attention that the sciences were, especially in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. You know, there's a lot of resentment there. But at the same time, I was like, how in the world? Could you possibly believe that there was like no real oppression? And the answer seems to be that they believe that science cheated by deferring to an objective standard and actually starting to figure things out. It's that science somehow cheated and then used their cheating knowledge to do terrible things pretty much right out of the gate. So they have this other weird view of human human nature, hmm. which doesn't admit mistakes, doesn't admit fallibility. And so it's like, imagine that you were a, a person who lived in, say, I don't know, 1600 or thereabouts. And like the predominant way of thinking about the world is conquest. The land that you control is your land and the land that you lose control of is no longer your land. And, you know, this is kind of the, the whole point of, of all those empires that were built, Rome, Ottoman, Mongol, you name them across all of history. Every human civil, civilizations tried to do this. And then... All of a sudden, you invent cannons, like not some gunpowder stuck in a bamboo chute that can fire off some fireworks or a little projectile. Cannons, right? If that ball, you fire a cannonball out of a cannon. I watched when I was in high school, I had the pleasure, I guess, as a teenage boy. I don't know. I was horrified. A lot of us were like, it was like no trigger warnings back then, guys. And there's a movie called Glory that uh, is about the Civil War. And my teacher was like, we're going to watch a Civil War movie in my American history class, and we're going to watch Glory. Well, I don't know if it was he did it on purpose because he was cool, or I don't know if it was a mistake, but he got the rated R version, or maybe it was NC-17. And like the opening scene of the film, if I recall correctly, maybe it's a little further into the film, is like the credits are rolling, and you're following, the camera is following a cannonball as it rolls through the air at high speed you can tell you know everything's whooshing by and the cannonball goes through some guy's leg and then it goes through some guy's head and then it goes through some structure and then it goes through another guy and it just is this ball is just barreling through so now you're in this mindset like oh well if i can take over the land it's mine and now i have a cannon it's going to take learning not to do that by screwing it up basically before people are going to figure out whoa this weapon changes things hmm. this is why and this is very um unorthodox thinking i think of world war ii as the point where the west decided okay conquest by force no longer okay we have nuclear weapons now we have airplanes we have machine guns conquest by force results in millions upon millions upon millions of dead people and literally devastated cities with a capacity to level a city with two two or three pieces of ordnance now when you talk about thermonuclear weapons it's right in the wheelhouse so now we can't do that anymore and so you what did you see coming out of the world wars the league of nations the united nations all these treaties all these pacts all these organizations like all right we're not going to conquer the world anymore the germans tried we're not doing that anymore we're not conquering the world anymore and so there's no forgiveness for they're like this ideology looks back in history at like 1600 or 1400 or whatever, or 15, I guess, is when Columbus would have been 1492, ocean blue, blah, blah, blah. And so they look back and they're like, those people should have known better. Why? How could they? We had to drop bomb nuclear bombs on Japan to realize that dropping nuclear bombs on a city is like, whoa, that was actually a really bad thing to do. <laughs> 
Like we actually had to do that. And then we're like, <laughs> whoa, okay, we got to change course, right? There's no, and, and this plays out, that's, that's a, the geopolitical scale, but that plays out on the personal scale. Like some guy tweets some racist thing, you know, like he's 17 years old and now he can't have a job anymore because there's no forgiveness because the idea is like these sins of oppression that came in with the fruit of, of knowledge uh, be, why? Why? Because they. Uh, what did the Europeans do? They used their power to go conquer the world. Colonialism, Atlantic slave trade, blah blah blah. Put people in bondage. How are they going to fight back? We have guns and steel and so on, and so they misuse their power. So that power becomes intrinsically evil. That is that is the fall from the garden. That is the energy of Cain. And the natural everyday world out there becomes the you know the, the indigenous cultures, the Native Americans, the the various you know countries and tribes of Africa and Australia and different parts of the world, all South America. All of those things become able that Cain goes around and just starts slaughtering. And that's the view. I mean, that's like the religious architecture behind this. Mm-hmm. And so the that sin of Cain that he used his his power to deceive and kill stains everything going forward so that you can't possibly forgive somebody who's complicit in the sin of Cain. That's the psychological and psycho-religious part we, 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 the kind of specially informed critical theorists, are separate from this. And yeah. we will bring us to the utopia. So, yeah, the one rule everyone should learn is just be scared be be wary of utopians and that's where they're headed they've got some kind of equity utopia in their mind that they're trying to drive the uh the course of history toward and they they genuinely believe they can do it it's heaven on earth it's heaven on earth it's their heaven and they do it backwards right so i don't know if people really understand what systemic racism comes down to but in a very real sense the system in systemic racism is everything that happens and you know if systemic racism happened if there are different outcomes why because total social constructions everybody total blank slate social constructions everybody in is inherently the same which by the way was the slogan during mao's rise you know man woman boy girl we are all the same was a was a maoist slogan uh everybody's inherently the same and then um, any differences, if everybody is inherently the same, any differences that show up on average by group must therefore be down to some mysterious systemic forces of racism that are somehow cooked in the system. So what they do is they look at the outcomes and say, well, if the outcomes are different, there must be racism. And then, and I don't mean to, to, to be harder on this than it is, but th- taking the literally least logical and stupidest possible idea that they could have they're like oh well if we just change things so that the outcomes come out the same that fixes the systemic problem right so it's like let's just put some put a put a coat of paint on the thing and then the problems fixed. so so it's, we, it's we've got idea. it we've got to bring this back to um because once we get deep into the sound doctrine it i, I get the sense that we disconnect from well, yeah, the general let's, public let's, so let's so can i can i just let, let me let me just let me just say something um that you imagine imagine Christianity, right? You can get into these really deep um, kind of ontological conversations with a a priest or a preacher or in the Catholic Church, um, the clergy. So you can get you get into these really weird spaces with them, and they'll go there with you, and they'll understand what the hell they're talking about. Right. But if I meet a Christian on the street and then try and try to jump into these um, these 
theological considerations and, and the, the philosophy behind the thing I believe, I'll be able to go there with you. And so what Jim and I get into on and off is this kind of sound doctrine um, that we would be able to speak if they would speak to us. <laughs> um, uh, we'd be able to speak to that to the postmodern clergy. Um, but when we're in this situation where I, I suspect the most of the people that are watching this aren't familiar with the sound doctrine, it, it would just sound like words to them. Um, just, just random word salad. It would sound crazy as well. Yeah, yeah. And so, but you do, you do have, you do have woke, culturally woke people, just like you have cultural Catholics or cultural Jews, um, and then you have clergy. And so, Jim and I are, are are very much interested in the clergy and figuring out how how the doctrine works in in a very specific form. And the manifestations of it, which are the cultural, culturally woke, it, it is a different thing. But there is a if you understand the theology, <laughs> the philosophy underneath it, you will see um, you will be able to make predictions about their behavior. Uh, and so if you can do that, you, you're on to something. And we have made many predictions. So, so there's a point, at, you know, we're wrong often as well, but there, there is a point at which the, the, what we're looking at is useful um, to the every person. But, but Ben, jump in, because I, I don't know, Jim and I get on a, a pretty deep into this, into this now, and we can, we can lose the every man quite easily. Okay, and so I'm, I'm I, I, painfully aware of that. I want, I, I want to put us into a thought, uh, just a, a dry run. So let's say that you are, uh, you're a worker in a business that's not conservative, not liberal. It's just, I, I guess it's just basically liberal in the sense that everybody just has their own life and has their own beliefs and they're just due to, there to do the job. And you know enough about this system of thought that you know that it will make the entire job about itself. It's a very selfish God. It, it causes everybody to think about it all the time. You know that it will derail the process of the work. Let's say you're in a preschool or an education system. You know that it's going to strain the human relationships. It's going to probably poison the kids to a greater or lesser degree. We don't know what it does to young minds, but we know what it does to 18, 19, 20-year-olds at Evergreen. And and yet you also know that it has an appeal to save the world and it's very cogent right now in this history. So if you were just a regular worker wanting to save your job in the long run, but also wanting to save the institution, what would you say to the, the, the head of the institution before this stuff actually gets going, before it's actually turned somebody uh, onto it. What, what are, what are, would, what's like have a basic to, argument? You would have to do, it's, it, it's not a basic argument. You'd have to, because you have to untangle each individual argument that's going to be leveled at the organization. So if you wanted to fix, you would hire, you would try and hire a consultant that is, um, an expert in liberal ethics, and then they could act as a translator between what these people are saying and the kind of moral intuitions that it is parasitizing. Wait, hold on, hold if on. If you wanted to do it yourself, go on, go on, go on. You're, you're seriously saying this stuff is so um, powerful that you need to hire a pest guy, somebody who's yeah. devoted his life to do this, to pre-spray the entire ground. 
I'm, I'm, it's weird, but that's what's going on right now. We're living in a strange time. I think that there's another way you could do it. It would be to understand objective standards and liberal ethics yourself. So do some homework and then you, you'll figure out how to, and maybe so some philosophy of science, depending on where you are, and then you will be able to translate because it's, it's a, it's, it's a shape shifting thing that, latches on to people's uh, moral intuitions the care harm foundation um and the mainly the care harm foundation Uh, so you've got to be brave and understand liberal ethics so you can recontextualize each individual argument on the grounds of no that that doesn't make sense because of a b and c and d and the thing is the thing is with the, the the people that are doing it are doing it the people that are taking this aboard, on board are taking it on board because they think that it will produce what liberal ethics have been producing in the past. And so to be able to, to, be able to translate and say, no, this is why this won't work, because it isn't liberal ethics, is probably your best source of argumentation. And so we're screwed because <laughs> it's, so, it's, it's not easy it's, it's very it's and, very difficult very complex let me um give a slightly more optimistic answer uh but yes um i do think that in 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 especially high profile cases that you, like bigger companies or whatever with more press exposure and more therefore agenda to chop that poppy down um, you are going to have to have probably consultants come in that can explain both sides of this thing. Uh, however, I just received an email the other day from a woman who actually did push this out of a mid-sized company by contacting her boss, and I published her email. I said, "Will you share with me what your exchange with your boss is? We'll make sure to uh, make sure everything's anonymous. We won't identify you or the company or your boss or anybody." And I published it on new, on new discourses the other day. And what she did was wrote a very you know kind email that starts by acknowledging the problem. Yes, I understand racism mm, is a problem. Mm. We don't want that in here. Secondly, she said, "I think you have to understand that the current." Uh, you know, movement that's happening is asking for very specific things. And this is what they mean by racism, whereas most people mean this. This is what they mean by anti-racism, where most people mean this. This is how they do it with this tool called white fragility. And she said, I read some of Robin D'Angelo in college. I had a class where it was covered. And she outlined a little bit of how Robin D'Angelo basically sets up a Kafka trap. And so the more people who can actually communicate to their bosses that if you import Robin D'Angelo, and we can be very specific here because everybody is, that it separates all white people and all people really of racial privilege at all into two categories. And when people see this, it's like, it's like, I'm trying to find a way to communicate this. Um, it's like when a magician tells you, how, like if you imagine you have a magician and his job is to like steal your watch, right? And he steals your watch and he gives it back because he's an honest guy, let's <laughs> pretend. And he steals your watch again and he gives it back. And then you're, you're like mystified. It's basically magic that this is happening. And then some other magician comes over, sees the thing, he steals your watch and gives it back. And the magician that came into the crowd taps you on the shoulder and says, by the way, this is what he's getting you to do. All of a sudden you see through the trick and it's not magic mm-hmm. anymore, right? Mm-hmm. And so with white fragility, once people understand one key fact about white fragility, and it's only one, is that it, it, it changes everything about how they see it. And the doctrine of white fragility 
which could be useful if it was written differently. Well, you can acknowledge that. Actually, the way it's written separates all people of racial privilege into two categories. Category one is racists who will admit it. Category two is racists who are too fragile to admit it. And when you realize that the two possible answers once white fragility is introduced are that you're a racist who isn't fragile or a racist who is fragile, you see the trick. You're always a racist, but the good person's less fragile about it. The bad person's fragile because now you have two failings, not one. And once people see through the trick, they're like, that's bullshit. And it worked, at least in this company, which employs, you know, somewhere between 100 and 200 people, has some 8,000 to 10,000 clients that they send materials to. It worked there. I think, I think on the plus side, was, uh, yeah, on the plus side is that a lot of people intuit that there's something wrong. They there. feel it. They, they don't know. They don't know what's it. going on, and they go, "Oh, maybe we'll go along with it." But they're like, they're not brave enough to push back at it, but they intuit that there's something wrong there. And so it's about getting those people and explaining to them what what is taking place, so they can figure out the difference between the two. And I think you hit on something very, very useful there, which is, um, yes, we want to fix these things. Yes, we see this as a problem. But what your your suggestion about how to get there, th- that's going to break everything. It it's like it's everything. like if they actually it's like someone has a flu and they want to they the, the prescription is chemotherapy. And we're just like, come on, man, just bed rest, <laughs> maybe some antibiotics. <laughs> and secretly they want the thing to die. Well, <laughs> that, that goes to back die. to that goes back to the susceptibility of uh, institutions across the board right now. It, it, it's a cumulative effect. Everybody's believing in this narrative that's not actually tied to actual data. Like the data itself is not as bad. It's still horrible. It's still horrific, yeah, let's yeah. say at least, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. as the as the narrative goes. So how do you I guess, do you combat that narrative? Do you just call it foolish? Or but you have to data, you have to get I mean, space. That part's hard as well. And you you had an awesome um, video on this in relation to Evergreen with this statistician. I, I, I suggest every put it in the in the uh, uh, the kind of write up underneath it because it's so good. So there's this there's this quote I quite like from a book called How How to Lie with Statistics, which is. I'll butcher it, but something to the effect of um, if if you torture the data long enough, it will tell you whatever you want to hear. And so the amount of that that I'm seeing taking place, like the people's inability to understand how statistics work and how normative distributions work and all that sort of thing, are being um, the naivety on that front is being used to their favor. So there's, there is so much statistic maneuvering mm. and torturing. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so their view of the world as this kind of horrible, he- racist, sexist, homophobic hellscape, it actually seems real because they come equipped with statistics. But the statistical readings have been so bent out of shape that if you've got a set of, if you've got a set of data you can almost make it say anything depending on what what you put it up against relative to mm. right like so so you can move you can move it you can you can t- tell a story with data that is a lie yeah using data yeah. and that's oh, sure. happening happening across the board so that's that's a really difficult thing to untangle from because these people come with arguments that are 
that are convincing because they've got data in the back pocket. When I was uh, doing my PhD, which was in math, uh, we actually had like a little lecture talking about statistics and in these regards. We I didn't focus on statistics, so I'm not an expert in statistics, but we did talk about it. And there was a famous, and I don't remember the guy's name, there was a famous um, statistician quite early on when statistics really started to get applied to a lot of things. And one of his, his sayings was, he was talking about voting theory in particular, how you can arrange an election. And he was like, oh, it's simple. Uh, you tell me who you want to win, let the people vote however they want, and we'll figure out which voting system you have to use to count the votes so that we get the winner <laughs> we want. It's more or less always possible. And so um, this is, again, why liberal systems try to – the most objective standard that is possible rather than cooked book systems. Yeah. Um, just if I might jump, though, since you specifically, Benjamin, asked about schools when you said you know somebody's in a school or whatever um, – I think that's an important point. So I started to lead into examples where they, you know, try to clean up the back end as if that just is going to fix the problem. And one of the things that they wanted to do with the pandemic, for example, was just give everybody A's. And what was the justification for giving everybody an A? Well, it's better for equity. Obviously, there were disruptions to education. They had to do something with kids' grades, whether it's no credit, whether it's, you know, something. They had to do something. But they argued everybody should get A's. And the reason was because people who have lower grades will be pulled up further. And people who have higher grades, it won't hurt them. So it'll it'll even things out more. And when you want to get rid of uh, objective standards like that. So if you're in a school, if you're in a school, you can actually, I mean, you're, you're first of all, let me just admit, you're in an uphill battle. The schools are cooked. Yeah. But yeah. that said, you actually will have administrators. You still have a lot of educators who definitely care about education. They've just been convinced that this is the best way to go about it. And you can actually appeal to them and say, you know, really? Here are these examples where, uh, and people do love a testimonial, here are these examples where some low-income kid had bad grades, bad home life, scored a 1460 on the SAT, ended up in Harvard, or whatever it is, and that kid would not have been discovered. And you can talk about you know these other kinds of things and say, is obliterating grades the, or obliterating these tests really the best way to go about it? Or are there other ways that we might go about it? Could we try to identify the problems with the test and fix them rather than mm. obliterate? Same thing, by the way, with the police, right? This is actually a feature, and I don't want to get lost in the weeds, but these are the kinds of things, by the way, that you can appeal to, these kind of contradictions in the prescription where they, as Mike phrased it, where it, it reveals that they're trying to give chemotherapy for a case of, of, of the flu or a common cold. Um, this is typically the case. There's a very, I hate to say it, but very infantile approach. It's, it's almost toddlerish to these problems that they try to fix so they're like oh there's a bad thing happening with the police and i want to phrase it that way bad thing bad thing very toddlerish and so what's the solution do we reform the police no do we do what do we do we get rid of it the thing that creates the bad thing get rid of it just get rid of it entirely it makes bad things get rid of it liberal society makes bad things get rid of it the rule of law makes bad things get rid of it due process this is your title nine example it makes bad things Get rid of due process. It's it's like it is a and who, who comes way into that to vacuum. solve the problem, right? And who and fills in the, the vacuum? The thing is, they want they, the the people with sound doctrine are going to come in with institutional diversocrats. Yeah, yeah, hmm. yes, they're the people so, who will come in. So we're we're talking about mobsters and, and anarchy, but I think the real the real. <laughs> 
frightening thing is the bureaucrats will come in and sort the it out. Bureaucrats will fill and it let, can I can I tell it. you where where if you've got if you've got a predictive model of this kind of blank slate thinking, the they they the philosophy that's underneath this they believe that that crime is a result of systemic oppression. So if we can get rid of the systemic oppression. We can actually, because they believe that people are blank slates, we can train crime out of the population. We will have a utopia. They, they believe Re-educate this. it out of the population. Just say it. Properly. And so what, what do you have? They, they're advocating getting rid of prisons. So this is the, this is the, this is the, there's a soft version. Let's, let's just re, let's just reshape, uh, let's reshape police. Which fine, I'm I'm up for that. Let's reshape prisons. Fine, let's up for that. But there's there's this extreme version of it, which is let's abolish prisons. Let's and it's pretty widespread in their in in their world. Let's abolish prisons. Let's abolish cops. And their thinking is that we can train this out of people. Hmm. So if you follow or, that to its logical progression, you have retraining camps. Yes. Some kind or, of gulag archipelago across America that's retraining well, and people. And that's why they and don't when train they don't me. work, you have undesirables who have to be yeah. uh, Well, exactly, exactly. When the crime keeps happening, they're like, that's when the scene missing part of their philosophy takes place. Mm-hmm. It's like then, all of a sudden people start disappearing. And the other thing is, is when you've got the bureaucrats in, in these positions, they can send anyone into the retraining camps they want. And we see that they're... That how, who, in places like Evergreen, it's like, well, we need that person retrained. We need that person fired. We need That's that right. person. And these Bring are people in, who are standing up. up against the ideology. These people aren't doing anything specifically bad or racist. They're just the people that are, 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 are annoying to them. The science departments, they were like, we'll bring them in, retrain them, and if it doesn't stick, we'll sanction them. That yeah. was that's like a direct George Bridges quote. Like, yeah. and that yeah. is going to go. That's what's going to fill in if they get rid of like the city hierarchy in Minneapolis, or if you know the autonomous zone of Seattle were to spread to you know a much broader region or citywide or whatever. That's what fills in the gap, and it's oh, like oh man, George Bridges the <laughs> the Stalin figure. Let's bring well, him in, retrain him, and if it doesn't stick, we cut him. That's right. That's what it that's actually stick. Stalin would could have probably uttered those words himself. That's, I mean, that's the thing though is, and if it doesn't stick, we'll just get rid of them. I saw a thing on Twitter with like thousands and thousands mm. and thousands. I mean, just insane thousands of retweets and likes talking about how, oh, well, this guy apologized, but that's not good enough. Once a racist, always a racist or some, you know, something. It wasn't those words, but it was it was to that effect. And it's like there mm. is no redemption possible. Right. No redemption. That's it. You're done. This the 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 phrasing actually was something along the lines of the person should never work again, and it's like, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute. This is when you say I'm for anti-racism, like that's actually what you're talking about. Plus a bunch of stupid bureaucratic programs that try to fix the problem by putting some paint on it mm-hmm. and then killing everybody who doesn't agree with it. Maybe in the end, so um, just, yeah, maybe let's just say, like to not get hyperbolic. It's, it's all there. It's all sitting there. And um, there's probably going to be some corrective uh, factors in the middle of it. But 
it's sitting there and if it if it if it gains too much power there are these logical endpoints which seem like some kind of dystopian horrific world to live in well i think that the, the, there's going to be a slide of standards as every institution and business gets taken over with this people have less resources to devote like just time and and people resources to devote to an actual good product within schools they never advocate to get rid of schools they advocate to get get rid of grades and stem because stem you can actually evaluate if you know the content or not so they still want those training camps and they'll just be a a slow gradual decline or mm. in one in one sense it does make in in one way it does make sense that we should be giving back to a race that our country has, you know, leaned on a lot. And that you can you can make a rational, more or less rational, not a lot of people are going to like it, but you can make a rational case for reparations. This entire ideology is trying to push reparations through, but it's going to set up a system of, well, look at all them taking my resources. People are going to wake up to the fact that they're just being robbed, and then they're going to want to go back. So it's going to get really unstable really quick in that way like on so this margin. this is the diff this is the difference between this ideology just running and taking over and it's it, america is a place where there are people who just won't put up with this no and won't. so there's going to be a pushback okay so this is where the evergreen case study doesn't apply right because there is this force within and it is an armed force and it, it can get very angry like, you don't want to poke that bear yeah. man you don't want to poke that bear so it'll it i think before you get a uh kind of retraining archipelago you will get some kind of balkanization and and your your states will go fully red or something like that and they will arm themselves and put up borders and things like that so there is there is a, a, a reactionary force that I, I i mean a lot of people are scared of it um and with due cause there is something there is something creepy hiding there you don't want to poke that bear man That's well, yeah, that the, the, i mean so bear. here's a place you can make a easy prediction too right there's an easy prediction available here and that prediction is if the bear gets poked meaning the right-wing militias and they decide to take action. They march upon the autonomous zone in Seattle and decide to take it back, right? You can predict that the entire intelligentsia, the media apparatus, the academics are going to come out in force and say, see, the KKK is marching on our cities. The KKK is everywhere. That's what they're going to say is right-wing, white supremacists, neo-Nazis. It, neo it, makes, it makes the world view true. So, there, so there's, this end, there's this endless kind of circulation of proof it's that meme, man. It's that, it's that meme I put on on Twitter all the time, where it was, it was a feminism at the time, yeah. but it shows a woman in a pink sweatshirt with the pink power fist, you know, with a plus under it or whatever, throwing a big pile of shit over the wall. It says the internet, and the shit says opinions, and she's throwing shit opinions over the wall, and then it shows shovels above the wall in the next frame, and the shit coming back down on her, and she's got her hands in there. She's like, ah, misogyny, and yeah. so it's like there's this game. Now let me let me back up one second though, because we talked about the hyperbolic, scary Google Hogs yeah. Yeah, and yeah. whatever. The more realistic situation, as you're pointing out, even if we don't have a right wing reactionary force that rises up to this, even if not, even if just the American structure is stable enough to withstand this attempted revolution, yeah. 
here's what we will this is i think the best case scenario at this point is what we will see is a complete hollowing out of trust of every institution that this colonizes yeah the i don't think that like the new york i don't think anybody's going to trust the new york times for 40 years nobody's going to trust academia and let i mean i think i actually think academia has a very narrow window that's still open and it could be a association of scholars or whatever who finally rise up and say enough we're doing science wars 2.0 we're going back to the 90s where the science wars tried to push this crap out enough we can keep the humanities alive but we're going to clean them up and we're going to and, and they go scorched earth on this ideology and say this doesn't belong in the yeah. academy and they separate critical theory as non-scientific and non-scholarly and remove it from the thing but it's going to take a concerted effort of a well, lot need, of academics. they need to draw I, I think that we need uh separation of church and state so this is why i'm so interested in the religious in in drawing lines around this and showing how religious it actually is because if we can classify it as religious then and i think we can i i, I really like uh, jim and i've been looking at that, this for near on three years mm-hmm. and i will stake my reputation on saying that we can map this out as as a religious structure entity um if with we can a do fundamentalist that, sect with, with a, a fundamentalist with a sect, fundamentalist sect. Yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 um if we can do that, then then principles of separation of church and state can be can be applied to it, and I think that that would help things simmer down a lot. Because if the right would see that this thing wasn't creeping into institutions and um, and your government, and and it was cordoned off, because it's not going anywhere. There's, there's bricks and mortar around. It's a billion dollar industry. It's not going anywhere. Like we're going to have to figure out how to live with this thing to draw lines around it and in our everyday culture we can say hey these these people are religious and maybe there's some cool stuff caught up in that maybe they're onto something but it's religious and then within the academy treat it like the divinity school it's the power school like there's the 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 thing is that the academy was yeah pretty much scholastic monasteries and then modernity hit and then you've got the modern academy coming up and then the religious stuff was relegated to a divinity school and it had lines drawn around it so people go oh that's divinity school stuff it's it's different right then all of a sudden post-modernity hits and it's trying to do what modernity did to Mm. the uh the scholastic monasteries it's trying to take the modern day academy and turn it back into a power school which is some right. kind of Conflict scholastic theory. monastery. It's an activist yeah. monastery. Um, and so if you can cordon it off, get rid of these diversity uh, boards, which are just ways to... Defund cut. diversity boards, for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty true. It's, it's a way to intimidate people and, and to spread, spread the ideology into, yeah. f- into other academic fields. So and you're you dead just, on. It off, and that's and academics are really they, they play apologetics for this stuff without even looking at it. So yeah. it's going to be hard to go, and especially we, uh, there's a principle in academia which I believe, which is you have to let academics do what they're going to do, right? Like it's you, you can't freedom. you can't just stomp on it and go get rid of that, or because if you open that door, then you're opening These the door. These people are very very scary. I've seen the tweets. Those were going with the shutdown the academy or shutdown academia. 
Yeah, um, yeah, it's true. Well, they, they were they saying we need to get rid of it. Yeah. And once we once we restart, now, then we can restart with a clean slate. That's what they're that's what they're betting on. That we're just going to level everything. Zero. Yeah. Well, there's room. There's room to have the power. The power divinity school. The power school become the academy once it gets rid of STEM. So it's moving into STEM. It's more or less. It, took over literary criticism the literary part very early on it's moved into all of the humanities uh social sciences some some parts of it are safe but it's now making headway into stem and once that happens then all of a sudden stem becomes the divinity school and we have a scholastic monastery as the uh as the thing that's producing information for the culture so it's right. producing the templates of thought for the culture. And then where do we live? We live in like this pre-modern-like place that's post-modern. And it's not even pre-modern because the pre-modern, I mean, Christianity has all this, this beautiful shit built in. <laughs> this has, this <laughs> has death and, and destruction and, and fighting and gr- groups getting angry Our at each other. Means. But you, here's another point, though, that you actually tapped into, and I think you can confirm the conservatives would actually be satisfied with a proper separation of church and state move against this. And the reason I say that is I say that with the religious conservatives specifically because they already feel like they've endured that, as they would see it, that, that iniquity themselves. And so hmm. they're like, you know what? And this is a feeling that a lot of people have right now. It's like, you know what? No, we're going to disband the cops. We're going to burn down a target. No, I show up every day. I play by the rules. And so you have all these conservatives, right, who are going to feel like, you know what? We decided we're going to live in a pluralistic, secular society with different religions and faith as a matter of of personal conscience. And we're not going to let the have state power. And we were like, okay, uh, fine, we'll play by those rules. And now all of a sudden you have a what appears to be very clear faith system or faith-like system no longer having to play by those rules mm-hmm. it's these double standards that piss people off and as soon as mm-hmm. you resolve the double standard people are like okay that's fair if you want to have your scientology if you want to mm-hmm. have your your ufo cult if you want to have like death cults are obviously a different regard but if you want to have we your can ufo even, we cult, can even be kinder to it right we can be kinder to it we don't have to say it, it, it i mean it is kind of crazy but well, they can continue chipping away at their thing it's it, as a kind of non-wartime religion right as long as it's not fundamentalist and trying to um it hasn't it hasn't trying been... to create moral law through our systems then it is more benign and may it might produce some interesting shit like it, theology theology is is hooked up with reality in certain ways and produces some interesting stuff it just it hasn't it For hasn't sure. been checked at all since since its inception it seems to me maybe maybe uh maybe in the 90s it was pushed back but it seems to me it's always been expanding so i don't think it yeah i don't think inside the the true believers have no sense of that how hubristic they are they have no sense of humility they have no sense of of limitation on themselves so it might they don't be, think they have a worldview so Neil Shemvy was talking about this. Uh, I think he's looking he's looking at this stuff and he's a Christian. And so he looks at it through this lens. And so I've, it's easier to talk to Christians about this than secular people because secular people don't understand that they might have a worldview. <laughs> and so the people, they're swimming in this water and, and then they see the Christians swimming in a section. They're like, oh, that's Christian water. But they don't understand. The, they don't even think that they're swimming in the water, right? Uh-huh. Um, so... That I think that that's what's going on. They genuinely think that this is the world that, they, and that that makes it dangerous, because then they can't step aside from it and go, well, it's not self-conscious. Yeah, that's what I'm it's, saying. It, you know, it you're, means you're, you're more of yeah, a yeah. 
Well, you don't really you're, become self-conscious right. until you get spanked, in a way. You, you don't really understand yeah, that yeah. you have a limit until a limit is put upon you. And you're right, Ben. It, it, it really... Um it really hasn't been properly checked. I mentioned the science wars, right? And I actually have a, I don't want to call it a grievance, but I have i have a bone to pick with the science wars, which was that it was done by these, you know, and I understand, I'm, I was a scholar myself, and I understand. There's this norm in scholarship where, you know, you're very circumspect, you're very careful, you don't say more than you should. I'm not saying that I don't believe in the idea that you can't criticize other fields. Anybody can criticize anything. That's part of the deal. But everybody was very circumspect. You know, Alan Sokol did his hoax in 95 and 6 very famously. And he's like, well, it's one journal and it's this very specific problem. He was very narrow and it was an uncontrolled experiment. He's very circumspect, very responsible. And that's what what happens is when that happens is it was like – Postmodern like nonsense was kind of pushed back and made unfashionable or whatever, but all that did was let the ideology find a new way. Right? Postmodern nonsense wasn't going to be the way. They had to do something more concrete. Okay. And critical race theory and so on started to fill that vacuum, and it would have anyway. Of course, they conquer everything, but um, that's why when I say if there's a science wars 2.0, if we have other academics, especially scientists political scientists, economists, anybody, sociologists, you know, even are quite close to this. Anthropologists are quite close to this this world, but not all of them are of the grievance studies world. If they start a second science wars 2.0, that's why I said it has to be scorched earth. It's like mm. it can cor- it has to cordon this off completely and say, "Listen, and Helen and I have been wanting to write this for years. We just can't ever quite find the time. We can't ever find the right space. Like, what's the right reason to do it? We've wanted to write the argument for gender studies. You know, we, so we write these hoax papers. It looks like we obliterated gender studies. We hate gender studies. Da, da, da. It's not true. And Helen actually wants to, Helen wants to be like her ideal job would be to become the professor, the first professor of the proper gender studies. She wants to create a real gender studies that's done right. And what it would be is, you know, well, you know what? Every other field has to defer to what other fields say about it, and so do you. So, like, for instance, if evolutionary biology puts out some stuff, and then geology is like, rocks don't work that way, guys, so your fossil record thing isn't quite right. Biology can't say, "Uh uh-huh, it has to, like, it has to eat it. It has to adjust. It has to change, right? Or if, if they say, well, we did these dates, you know, these radiometric dating, and physics is like, that's not how radioactive decay works guys they can't say yeah it is works for us it's our truth they can't do that so if gender studies wants to study the the manifestation of gender as a social construction great let it if it wants to study it in a philosophical interdisciplinary whatever other buzzword way great let it but when biology says hey guess what biology biological sex is real and whatever's going on with biology, biological sex creates like powerful chemicals in your body, like hormones. And those things might have some influence on gender expression. Gender studies being a bit fuzzier probably should say, hmm, we can't be in contradiction with biology. Mm-hmm. So we have to adjust. And the, the difference here is that this field, you know, this set of fields has never had to do that. It just calls them a sexist or it calls them a racist. Mm, it, has, it has this utopian uh, endpoint it wants to get to, and if truth gets in the way, it's racist and sexist. Okay, but, but exactly. it has to be pushed out of the way. 
truth is if truth, truth gets is, in the way of their utopia they they're going to roll the fuck over it that's, that's right. how it looks but they have well, to get along with each other they don't they don't they don't get along with each other at all that's why they're they're it's like a it's like a car that has like the fender falling off and like the hubcap rolling down <laughs> well, it's like barely this is, this is why i said the road. intersectional pyramid is what holds them together it's the theory of everything for oppression studies well so they, hold on well hold on well hold on that's the sales pitch mr nana that's the sales pitch of intersectionality intersectionality was created by black feminists Disclaimer, that's a school of thought. It does not refer to a race of of certain feminists. It is a school of thought called black feminism. Black feminists created intersectionality. Black feminists specifically created intersectionality with the intention of sicking race, critical race theory specifically upon feminism. So feminism, radical feminism was the first victim of intersectionality. And these people could not stand how problematic they were. Right? There's and a joke like, about okay. uh, the radical feminists always being the victim. <laughs> they always well, they are. are. They are the victim. They always yeah, get yeah. the shit in the stick. <laughs> they were the first victims of intersectionality. They didn't. And then uh, because just like we're seeing with all these institutions now, what they did was the phrase now is they bent the knee. They dropped on their knee. They started praying to their intersectional gods. And so now we're seeing the fruit of that. The program of intersectionality was always to advance, to make black feminism as an ideology. Not Again, it's not all black women. It's not all black people who are feminists. It is a specific ideology. Right. It was to make that the moral center of the universe. So now we see all these demands for Asians, for Arabs, for, for Hispanics, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. your Latinos, for you name it. Every other race now has to bow to blackness. Yeah. And, it yeah. has and if you to be think about, if you think about the lack of corrective, because other disciplines have corrective forces, like people come in and go, hang on a sec, that's bullshit. No, don't do that. If you think about a place that doesn't have a corrective force, <laughs> like imagine an academy and you've got liberal academics and then you've got a department with black feminism written on it you may as well have a head on a spike like they're going to approach that room like you know what mm-hmm. just do whatever you want to do in there you you do it true um, with a capital t girls yeah yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. it's almost it's almost uh racist and sexist in and of itself right like there's this thing where it's like oh, i can't approach this you you oh, go off in totally. that creepy little corner of yours and do whatever you want. Oh, we're we're just gonna we're gonna move over here because you're not the same human as I am. You know what I mean? You're not you're not the rest of us. There is something. There's kind of a weird paternalistic racism and sexism in letting that stuff take place without holding it holding its feet to the fire like you would your other colleagues. Okay, so if if we. This is what I'm gonna. I, I think is gonna happen after the uh, the Black Lives Matter movement kind of uh, runs out of steam. People aren't as interested in it. I think we're gonna have another identity movement and another identity movement. And I saw over the last I don't know m- maybe ten years, probably eight years, uh, America and probably just the corporate world reboot the Catholic calendar. And instead of having saints, now we just have an identity day. And every month is an identity mm-hmm. month. We have Pride Month. We have mm-hmm. Black History Month. We we have Latino month, but do, do you know, can I, can I just say something? Sorry. I know, I know I've, we haven't given you much of a, a mic in this it's thing. Just my channel. There, it's your, it's your voice. It is just a very, very interesting thing you, that goes there <laughs> is that, okay. So in a, in a pre-modern time, you've got a saint 
who is close to God, right? He's close to God by the clergy or the saint. He's, he's, he's got some kind of channel to God. And he's usually kind of he's been uh, martyred in some way. So, so it is tied into oppression. Just visually, there's always a martyrdom of the saint, right? So, and then, then you have a day based on an individual, right? It's an individual that's close to God. Yeah. And so this new, this new philosophy theology is victimhood makes you more sacred so the so the 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 saint is sacred somehow and he's an individual or she is an individual in in the new theology you are the more oppressed you are the more sacred you are but there's no such thing as an individual as a group Mm -hmm. so what what do you think is going to replace if you've got a new church that has a different kind of theology and it's doing the same things that, that the church did in the in pre-modern times, it is going to start to dictate group days, holy group yeah. days or months, yep. Black yep. History Month, yep. Women's Day. Transrumendance. So, so it's, it, it's this whole thing is there's, it's, but, it works. But here's, it, here's, my, here's my question, and you guys can discard it, but it, the, the way that it's being implemented is so resource heavy it's demanding so much that not every group is going to be able to be this demanding on the rest of society it's going to have to as a movement writ large critical race theory all these different progressive movements are going to have to tone it down and regulate the pie they're going to have to treat it as a pie or mm, or mm. are they all going to fight is is black lives matter always going to be no no that it goes it goes up to it goes up to whoever's most oppressed and black feminists are black trans are on the top of the hierarchy because it's kind of built that way so if it's a if it's a kind of if it's a mob it's tony soprano is the black feminist at the stuff and everyone's putting their kick up to the top right ever there whatever the spoils of war go to the top but I don't think Latinos are going to allow their resources to go to. I mean, it, and and I don't want to go I mean, down this this idea of thinking. Look but at all these just, good white people who are, are are given all their resources over. Anybody who gets shamed enough into this. Well, okay, but I don't. I don't think. I don't. I think that you're going to have other <laughs> ben, groups. Ben, someone's going to cut that little kid out. You're going to get in a no, lot of trouble no. for that. White people think that they're so special that they can save the world. So you can always count right, on the white right, people right. to give to to bow to you. The the, the, the white yeah. people. Yeah. Are are affirming, and this is what happened at Evergreen. They're affirming their own sense of superiority by yes. giving their largesse and it's bowing racist. down. It, it is racist. Their bowing down is actually a signal of their authority that they have so yeah. much power the, they can cede it so down. True. It's so have you true. guys seen the letter from from the UC Berkeley guy that's going like all over the place? It turns out he's a I I don't know what race he is. Person of color as he describes himself. Um, but one could intuit that he may be black. Uh, UC Berkeley historian has written this open letter to some of his colleagues anonymously, and it's going everywhere on the internet. And he's talking about exactly that. This how how intrinsically racist this ideology is. How it views black people as incapable of learning the sciences. And you actually see that, right? In the pillar, like in in mm, the fundamental mm. texts of critical race theory, you say, you know, they say things like that science is a, is a way of knowing that was constructed by white Western men, and it's mostly, you know, used to reinforce white supremacy. And they're saying in between the lines that 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 science is a white Western way of knowing, yeah. and it's not really for black people. By the way, black people have a different way of knowing called counter stories and storytelling and lived experience. And it's like the mm. the guy, this professor at Berkeley. At, Berkeley 
says, you know, literally this ideology says black people are too stupid to learn science, right? And so there's this whole thing. It meshes with that study that was that showed a, a year or two, I'm sure, which will get retracted any day now, mm. that study that showed a year or two ago that liberals, meaning people on the left, not philosophical liberals, left-leaning people in the United States tend to dumb down their vocabulary when they talk to people of color. Mike will have experienced that extensively from me, of course. Um, I don't ever use like 11 syllable words when I talk to you. <laughs> uh, James, uh, Mike's, no. Mike's skin gets darker depending on his uh, the people <laughs> in the room and your, your vocabulary. Uh, I'm halfway there. <laughs> don't let him trick you. His skin gets darker according to how much time he gets on the beach. He's told me about it for years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, all of a sudden I, I feel more safe after I've been out in the sun. Um, but no, seriously though, there there is a real element to that here, which is that there is the, and the so, they call it the soft bigotry of low expectations. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But when you're talking about abolishing grades, abolishing cops, abolishing prisons, I mean, you're talking about some serious like I don't know if that's even soft bigotry at that point, you know. And um, when you talk about establishing these these group things right we're going to look at everything in terms of groups i want to actually punctuate that too um there's this book educator to educator as you guys all know i read this fucking shit all the time there's this book educator to educator it's about educator to educator just like what's that book about <laughs> you know and it's about social justice education is what it's about of course and there's a the the one of the editors and authors is is uh lynn um lemesco is her name and in chapter 17, which because I've referred to it and had to look it up like 700,000 times because it's so useful, mm. she outlines the definition of social justice. And she says that where, where uh, liberal democracy is about individual rights and achieving justice for individuals, social justice is about achieving justice for groups. Yes. And it's about group rights. And she says that that for her is the most fundamental difference, the fundamental characteristic of social justice. Why does that suck? Just simple, simple, simply put, why does it, why, why do group rights suck and why are, why are they I, worse than individual rights? Last time I checked, ain't nobody a group. <laughs> um, <laughs> you are guaranteed to miss some people 100% of the time, thus speak for them or thus speak over them or thus use them or thus appropriate them or thus put them in a lane that they don't want to be in. And then when you start trying to divvy up uh, there, there are other problems. When you start to divvy up the, say, rewards of society, if we want to phrase it that way, right? You have to divvy them up by group. Well, everybody's been in a group in high school, and like you have a class project, everybody has to make a poster and stand up and talk, and you always had that one person in the group that like wouldn't help. Like maybe they brought some glitter, but they probably didn't bring any materials because that would cost money. They did nothing, right? And then mm -hmm. they get the same grade as you. So doing that by group, there are always those people who can grift. Then you have the problem, and this I actually learned, frankly, at a Christian conference that I got invited to go to, and I walked around and I met all these Christians, and there's these two black guys on stage talking, and I went to their session. We're in, I'm in a room with like three, 4,000 people listening to these two guys do a podcast, and they're like, I wanna talk about ra racial reconciliation, right? I'm talking about racial reconciliation. And this one guy says, races can't reconcile. And of course, you know, you can almost feel, even in a Christian conservative area, you can feel the air just suck right out of this <laughs> gigantic room. No matter how big the room is, you're like, races can't reconcile. He said, only individuals can reconcile. 
because all it takes is one person who might be a grifter, who might be Naeem Alo, to say, I ain't reconciled, and that group is no longer reconciled. Okay. The groups aren't reconciled. Mm-hmm. All it takes is one individual to, 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 to uh, foment grievance, and the races aren't reconciled. Okay. And then you miss individuals. Kanye, I think for myself, they're like, no, you don't. You're not allowed to. You know, what the hell is oh, that? Well, let's, let's, also, let's also bring this to the ground level. You don't, if you see the more of this stuff you adopt and you take as gospel, the less you see individuals in front of you. And you see it, you see it. There's this, um, mm. oh, you're a black guy. Yeah, or, or just this, this way that people behave around you is, is uh, <laughs> it's, it's inauthentic. They're not, they're not, they're not bonding with you properly. And it's the you're same my black friend. We it, we got yeah. to a point where people were taking photos with with black people as some kind of like status symbol okay, or something so this like that. And it's like to me it's, too. you know where that happened to me. What? China. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they wanted to take pictures with the white person. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's there's something very strange about it. I always think back to. The first time I was working in the cinemas and there was this this film, um, it was one of those kind of white liberal self-flagellation category of films. I mean, that's a themed film now. It was a good film and it was addressing something that was uh, quite horrible in Australia's history. It was called The Rabbit Proof Fence. There's a generation of Aboriginal children was stolen by the colonial um uh, leaders yeah. and Re-educated. in their mind they were doing something good for these these children because they were bringing them into uh, a culture which was advanced right race is horrible but anyway there's there's the in something like that that is that's kind of a a self-flagellation almost church service for a lot of the uh mm-hmm. for white liberals to go to that and feel the emotions that are that are attached to that the passion yeah, it's the passion yeah. of the Christ, right? It's something something similar to that. But I didn't understand that at the time because I was young, working at the cinemas. And then some an experience, strange experience I had where a school group came in of Aboriginal students, and there was this one Aboriginal kid who was speaking to another Aboriginal kid in their native tongue. And so it's to be fair, it's an interesting language. You don't hear it very often. But they were saying they were speaking in their native tongue, and then there were these two. Uh, white liberals, older, who were going to see this film, and then they started approaching this yeah. this kid, and I was like, oh, "What is this wonderful, magical creature? Uh, Hello there, little child. What is it that you're speaking there?" And like, there, it was like they were approaching some kind of deity, and the way they were behaving around this kid, it, it made me. It was. I've seen overt racism that was less disgusting to me. There's something really yeah. weird going on with their behavior. And I'm just looking at this kid. He looks at me because we're both just in awe of the way these people are treating this kid. And he's like looking at me going, what, what's going on here? Who are these people? Like, Save me, what, cinema what, man. What is this Help horrible me. display that is oh in front of gosh. me? And it's this weird kind of r- racism that was taking yeah. place. They didn't even see him as human. They saw him as some kind of... Uh, a display. He was like a display object they were trying to e- interact with. They weren't like in. Let's get rid of that kind of magical world that you're in, and you see a human in front of you mm. that you know you you 
that might be your friend is just another person. And that uh, people want to be treated like that, right? They want to be treated like everyone else. Yeah. There was an article that came out, I think, yesterday or the day before, and it was about a, I think, a New York City doctor, a black woman doctor, and she goes through and she lists all of the rude interactions that she's had. And usually it's just there's, there's assholes that are being assholes to her for her race or it's racism. It's ambiguous whether or not she's actually being racially assaulted, but people are, you know, doing microaggressions like, oh, you're a doctor and uh, where are you from? And are you a citizen? And and little things like that. And I can understand to a certain degree the amount of stress that that takes to just have to, like, answer the same thing, especially in a service Mm -hmm. industry job. And the article Mm -hmm. ends with this beautiful moment of her and this white man kneeling down for eight and 42 minutes and uh, or eight minutes, 42 seconds. And the white man like looks up at her and he's crying. He's like, I, I never want you to be disrespected again. And my, my point is, is that those articles and I, I don't want to you know diminish the authenticity of her experience or of the article itself. But that kind of awareness or raising awareness only makes nice people more aware. It doesn't change rude people. It makes nice people more nice. And it makes nice people more trigger, more more easily triggered by rudeness or by the perception mm-hmm. of being rude. And and it, it just initiates a a, a a white liberal uh, just a mind, mind spin of, I, I have to be better than this. I have to be better than this. I have to be better than this. And the, I just don't think that it's necessarily helpful, especially if that it is your yeah. path to too, And there's too much in, in the one-to-one interaction when you're thinking through all that stuff. There's too much cognitive weight. So you can't actually relax around a person of a different ethnicity because you're processing it. And then all of a sudden you start behaving weird around it around a person of a different race and maybe even the person of a different race is like maybe this there's some weird racial thing that's going on here because this person is 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 processing too much this isn't how people of my own ethnic group behave around me this might be racism and this white person said oh my god did i say the wrong thing and they're kind of a robot around this uh, and a person of a different race and it's like just hey it's simpler than that there's just, so much you're stuff in the humans. literature. You're just there's, two humans. Just hang out. There's, there's so much stuff in the literature that reads like projection that ex- tries to explain that. Like uh, <laughs> Alison Bailey is one of our favorites, Mike, of course. Yeah. Talking about, I mean, like she has these really weird <laughs> papers sack. about white talk where she starts off with these long paragraphs of how like she said all this really weird, awkward stuff. And like, here's how tense I was getting. You know, and I was talking to a black person. I just kept saying weirder and weirder stuff. And that's white talk. And all white people do this. And it's like I was telling, I was telling my wife earlier, we were talking and I was like, you know, this like a normal people don't do this, but is, as Benjamin was just saying, conservatives, if that's who they're after, really don't do this. Like, if you think that the person might like my typical, I have lots of conservative friends. Some of them probably have racial issues that they can work out for themselves, but they never, I've never seen them make it personal with anybody ever. I've never seen it. I've lived in the South for 35 years. I've never seen it once, which is what do you mean making it personal? Like you're black, get out of okay. my house, or you know, some you know something clearly racist. Like I just see people be like treat people like people with conservatives, unless you know they they do talk about groups and group stereotypes, but I've never seen them talk about an individual. Like once they're in the they, room, by, with them, once right? they're in the room, yeah, yeah, totally yeah. different. 
And then it's like, so let's say that you had a white fragility situation, right, with a conservative, because that's who they're really obsessing about is that there's these conservatives out there that are white supremacists. And so what would happen is, because I know so many people like this, let's say that there are some that are racist and some that are not. We'll look at both cases. This is a mathematician thing. Look at all the cases. If they do it to a, a, a person who's not racist and is conservative, they'll say, well, don't you think you have white fragility? And the guy would say, hmm, let me think about it. No. And then that's it. And he's confident in himself. He's like, no, I know I'm not racist. Move on. Game over. And he doesn't have this like weird cycle of, of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. And then when you talk about the ones who are racist, they'll be like, hmm, let me think about it. Yes, I am. And they just confess. They don't care. I've never met an actual person who's racist who isn't like comfortable saying that they're racist. They don't try to hide it. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, I'm racist. What? So what? And then that, that's like their whole attitude. I grew up in the South. I've met these people. It's, it's how they are. So I've never really met a conservative person who falls all over themselves trying to deal with an accusation of racism. Like if somebody said, man, wasn't that kind of racist? I'm like, no, I didn't mean it that way. And for them, case closed. Mm-hmm. You don't have this sit on the ground for eight minutes and 42 seconds and cry in each other's faces and these weird things. And so you said this makes nice people more nice. And the thing is, it's... I think so perverse about this particular ideology is that it seriously manipulates niceness. Yeah. It's like mm. I wrote an essay on new discourses I called um, the I said that the social critical social justice is a or critical theories are a virus on the liberal body politic and I talked about the different features of liberalism that they that that they infect and pervert and make more viruses with and I'm again if, if anybody doesn't know this, that's their metaphor for themselves. I didn't make it up. I read it in one of their papers. They call themselves AIDS. And I, I again, I don't exaggerate which virus they chose. They chose that and they said it's, it's an ideal feminist pedagogy to have an immunosuppressant virus like HIV, especially one that would cause cause cell damage and, and DNA change. And then they say that cancer represents transforma- transformational change. That's what they say about themselves. I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm you, I did a video on on that I still get I still get battered that I'm a feminist hater. I'm anti-feminist because of that paper. I'm like, it's a feminist that wrote that. <laughs> they're not even like small. I mean, they're not huge in the feminist world, but they're yeah. actually, you know, recognized yeah. names. And Brian Fars, Faz and uh, Michael Carter, yeah. they're not zeros. And it's not like there's some fringe thing. It is a small journal, but nevertheless. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, it's a parasite one of the things on- it definitely... It it, it, it it infects niceness, niceness. Like with coronavirus, right? They're like, oh, it has these spike proteins and it attaches to this thing in your lungs, this, you know, whatever receptor that nicotine apparently stops or some something, and it attaches to that, and then it can inject the viral, viral uh, DNA or RNA in this case, and then bad things start to happen. And that niceness is the thing, is the receptor, it, one of the receptors it attaches to. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, it it's... It's so for me the like the most evil part of it is that it takes the best part of the human nature yeah, of the nicest yeah. people and turns it into a weapon. Because what, what's corrupt, happening corrupt there is, is is it's latching on to people's feelings of guilt. And it's if horrible. you're feeling guilt about that, that's the that's the that's the first thing you need. You've opened the door to some kind of self transformation. If you're feeling guilty about something it's your body telling you that maybe there's compass. something that needs to be sorted out. Yeah. But that's the door in which you, Robin D'Angelo's come around and then start poking around in your subconscious and creating these, these, these ways to explain feelings that are inside of you that 
is like a virus. It, 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 yep. it, it's drawing lines around some emotions that are inside of you mm-hmm. to draw you into this ideology, which at its core is broken as fuck. And that and goes so, back to, to, to why you were saying, Benjamin, why is it bad to think in groups? And so how do they mem- do that guilt? They're like, well, white people and did this. They s- enslaved all these people and they conquered all this territory and they spread these yeah. diseases and did this genocide. And white people did this and white people did that. And white people had Jim Crow and white people did redlining and white people did that. And they have this whole lynches and, you know, they this, all these white people did this, white people did that. And then again, I appeal to my conservative people who know who they are. Like, and I don't mean that like they know they're conservative i mean they know who they are as a person and they're like i didn't do that that's it Mm. i didn't do that Mm -hmm. but when you think in terms of groups now all of a sudden you have all these people that are like oh white people did all these terrible things let's treat the people that are agitating me now kind of like we have to make up for that in some way which clearly turns into treating them kind of like children and it's it's horrendous. It just—it seems and obvious. And the gone as well, because as you said, the conservatives—they're not going to—they're yeah. not going to buy in. Like it doesn't make sense unless you're operating from a perspective within that yeah. worldview to right. bow to this stuff. There's, and it's and so, not it's, just so at some point the there's way. no and there's no diplomacy. It's either you're racist or you're coming on for our prescriptions. It's not just conservatives. What I'm noticing is that it's a oh, one she, very. Non idiots. Oh, sorry. It's no, no, been a bit yeah. mean, but anyway. No, it's 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 you know a very I mean? certain Someone. type of it's a very certain type of person, and most many conservatives, because of whether it's conservatism being being conservative, like whatever that means in terms of psychological and moral foundations, whether it's because of their moral structures and the way that they're that they they're raised, whether you know social factors, whether it's their religion in the cases that they're religious, it's not though. There are a lot of people on the left also, and it's people who know who they are. This stuff just bounces off of them. Mm-hmm. But it's people who aren't sure of who they are that it gets into them and starts eating them up. Well, Am this, I is, really this is where this is where another another interesting part of how the internet plays into this. Because you, you, you once you start uploading your persona onto Twitter and trying to create a digital persona, all of a sudden your local identity is gone. And then so people are trying to find these superordinate kind of global identities. Yeah. Um, people who are more connected to the outside world or their local identities or who they are within their families and things like that they're they're less likely to to buy into um to get swept up i think is probably into into this kind of alice in wonderland type um identity finding entity like they're going down that rabbit hole what they do is they have um you you said everybody loves an anecdote and so I've seen this happen where people confess their racist moments, like or not their racist moments, where the the moment when they were confronted by racism or when they suffered from racism, and so it starts on the individual to collect its data. But what it does is it aggregates all of the individual experiences of racism or possible racism or discomfort that could be interpreted as racism, and it gives it all this universal meaning. It shakes it all down into this entire story. But it. it it doesn't seem like if if somebody is being uh, oppressed because of racism, because they're being treated as a member of a group, that you would then think to treat them as a group to solve that, or that you would strip the individual experience away from people in order for them to have a better personal experience. Like, it just you seems just so half, half cocked. 
But it's, it's from inside their world, that's where you've got to go, all right, well, what are they thinking? And then, then all of a sudden you see we are the playthings of the power gods. There is, that's when it gets really great right, okay, because yeah. it's so unintuitive to you because you're like, well, that doesn't work because I live in the outside world. And then you've got to go, you've got to all of a sudden put your, put your theory glasses on uh. and embody what they see. And what they see is a different ontological structure. It's, diff- it's metaphysical. Like there's, you, there's something. Would you like my theory goggles on this one? Go on, Please. what you got. Yeah, you're, you're, you're the best it, It's story. exactly what you said. It's the power gods, right? So what they say, and this is literally it, right? So they, they would say, for example, that a situation is not, they're not racializing a situation by bringing up race. Or they're not, when they start talking about racial groups, they're not racializing people. They're not thinking groups identity. What they, what, what, what they actually believe is that, and I, I have to say it this way because it's what they genuinely believe, is white people constructed these categories and forced them on everybody. The dominant power gods forced, and I don't mean white people as the gods, I mean the dominant they power that white people created, whiteness, forced this upon everybody. So when they when they play the race card as it is, what they see that as is, well, you told me I have to, meaning society or the power structures said I have to play the black role. So now I'm going to play it and I'm going to play it in a way to unmake it. Okay. That's what they think they're doing. Okay. They actually think that that's what they're doing. But obviously this doesn't work in reality. It only works in, in like make-believe land um, because in reality people are like, oh, you're a group. Well, I'm a group. Social identity theory has very clearly mapped out how this works. The groups can be arbitrary like snakes and like like rattlesnakes and eagles. Like you, you wear yellow shirts, I wear blue shirts. Next thing you know, it's like Lord of the Flies between us if, if they agitate the situation correctly. Mm. And um, it's it's really just the most backwards way to look at a thing and it's but it's it incentivizes a certain type of person or certain people are getting ahead because of this how did it grow into a multi-billion dollar industry if it wasn't benefiting somebody race i think you're you're spot yeah yeah it's not even just race hustlers there's other tentacles to this right like russia china what well, this is also, a no, 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 no. Within, no, it, no, within no. itself, there's, there's, also ex, there's external people, things going on. Just straight up broken people. Hmm. Broken people. Yeah, Michelle the, the one who rationalized the their grievances. Person. Yeah. yeah. Michelle but, but, but there's, there's, there's this other broke. aspect of it where, hmm. okay, so within the art and film industry here in Australia, there came a time where it was quite obvious to me, and it was hard to view it for what it was back then, but it was quite clear, and it happened explicitly and implicitly in a lot of the um, the opportunities that were presented to me. It's like some people just said, "Hey, use your use your ethnicity to advance." Like explicitly said that to like good people. Yep. They're like, "We want stories from," and for some reason, the ethnicity part was always linked to some kind of oppression narrative. It wasn't. It wasn't use your uh, identity. It's it's. Give me your oppression. Give me your suffering, and then we we will we will give you. You know, it's 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 hmm. almost like a Uncle Tom type thing. I cry for your balls. Hmm. <laughs> I talk about my sadness, and you'll be happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so there is, there was this this this. It was quite obvious to me that that was a career advancement tool, and you see it. You see it a lot with these these comedians who who were quite good in their own right, but then they play into the racial suffering 
um, part of it, and then they advance beyond everyone else. It's like you know, it's like white guilt is a way to the top in in this in this strange culture. And, and you, so you remember that story I told you, right? Right, the woman that I sat down with, and it's like I get interviewed, and it was all these different people are going to take turns asking questions at the end, and it's like I talk to the one, and I talk to the one, everything's going fine, and I know some of the people in there agree, and some don't because it's like a point counterpoint thing, and the last girl that it's like there's drama to even have her sit down, and it's this little Hispanic woman, uh, like tw- I say little because she's like short, but also twenty or something young is particularly what I mean, and she sits down and she's like I'm the chief student diversity officer of my university and i'm like i'm on a camera and like that just got dropped on me i'm like uh-oh <laughs> you know and then she's like basically what i want to know for you from you is i actually in many respects don't agree with what our diversity program does anymore and i only work in things i do agree with i only work for example to um to to get more vegan options in the cafeteria for people who want to have more dietary choices or whatever. And I mostly outsource everything else. And what I wanted to ask of you is they came to me and they said, here's a scholarship. Here's a monthly stipend of cash payment. You'll have power over students. You'll get to be able to make decisions that influence how the university operates. So they offered me all this money and power when I was a sophomore. I'm a senior now. What would you say to that sophomore to convince that person not to use their ethnicity to get ahead? And that's how she ended up being the diversity officer as a sophomore, okay, leading okay, to okay. teach, and then, okay. and then re- re- regretted it by the time she graduated. Well, it is. There's this level of Uncle Tom that uh, – so I had to get into a position where I was like, you know what? I, that makes me feel bad. Um, that makes me feel uh, dishonest or something like that. There's some some lack of dignity in taking that career path, so I had to say no to it. Um, that's what I know. told the girl too. I was like – and it's, how would you and really you, feel lo- you lose you lose out on advancement and so we're talking about <laughs> we're talking about industries our, our industries of cultural production are oh there's too many people there's too many people and not enough the, the, the competition is insane and not only from the inside from the outside because the internet comes along and all of a sudden you've got independent journalists who haven't even studied journalism vying for a position so there's there's less and less to go around these are overcrowded labor markets. The, the academy is one. And I think that a lot of this stuff, um, there is this kind of mundane, because we talk about these religious uh, and moral structures that they create, but anyone that understands actual religion um, and the infrastructure that's built around it, it's quite mundane. And so you, when you go into these spaces and places, religious places, you realize that there is this kind of mundane, not magical part of it where some, there is an accountant there is bricks and mortar. They have church conversations. Account. They have rational conversations within church. There's a business aspect to it. And so huh. they're, they're, it's not just optimizing. So Jim and I talk about the page, but then if you look outside of the page, the there's bricks and mortar and, just, and economics yeah. and infrastructure and, and people wanting to advance. And that page is also influenced by this, this kind of yeah. multidimensional thing that's going on. And if you look at the academy, particularly in the 90s, it's this it's this overcrowded market where they're where they're just printing phds and there's no tenure positions and so they're innovating into these new areas of thought creating their own Mm -hmm. uh departments and things like that so there's this real kind of bricks and mortar aspect of this and because it's about racism sexism it's like stay away oh you 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 want to cut out our funding are you racist and sexist yeah and so there there is this element of some kind of 
infrastructure, bricks and mortar growth and careerism. Careerism is yeah. built right into this. And because yeah. it's optimized in the ultimate, um, in the ultimate uh, kind of crowd, overcrowded cultural production market, the academy, every other cultural production one is overcrowded now and under threat. Yeah. And so it's got these factors, these Kafka traps and identity politics that allows you to advance as a certain identity. What do you um, do as a white male other then? Structures. You become the ally? Is that is that what we see? What? How does the white male um, game the that system? Gets in a, is, or does he leave and create something gonna... better? No, I mean, well, some do, but I mean, they do try to play the allyship solidarity game. And, and, and then that that worked for a while yeah, and it's the not ante work just out. kept getting upped it went from allyship then allyship was problematic and then it becomes solidarity and then it became forward black voices and now it's like step down from your position and give me your job and it's like it the the ante just keeps getting upped on that because when you are dealing and i'm not saying that all these people are careerists but when you do have careerists driving the hmm. the market um that's the natural progression of that it it, it mike is actually extremely um, insightful here by saying that we're dealing with that. As a PhD, I can actually speak to it. The overcrowded PhD market, you have way too many PhDs and as somebody with a PhD and who has struggled with the, psycho the psychology of leaving academia, which I did in 2010, it's like, there's this weird sense of humiliation as a PhD and this belief you can't work and it's not just a belief too, there's struct structural elements. There's, there's this weird humiliation and belief like that non-academic or non-PhD level jobs are in some way psychologically beneath you, it's very hard <laughs> to accept I'm going to get a labor job after I went to school for 14 years or something like that. And then <laughs> you go to apply for jobs outside of academia, which of course are very limited. And then you're set, you're told universally, as I was when I first started looking for a job outside the academy, you're overqualified. You're overqualified. And I was like, what is this bullshit? Well, yeah, what how does can you be overqualified for something? Well, it, what it means is they know you're going to get bored with a job that isn't academically challenging enough. So you're going to quit and they're going to dump resources into training you and you're going to bail out. Or they're going to have to pay you way more than they can afford to pay because they don't need that level of skill for that career. And so you're you're too expensive. Some combination of both of those things. <laughs> so you have you start producing these massive numbers of PhDs who don't really have anything to do. And there aren't jobs to give to them. And then they have these weird psychological factors to them that are like, I can't I can't turn my back. It's like the sunk cost fallacy turned up to the highest level almost that you can do without investing mm. millions of dollars mm. into something. Because mm. you've done like, not only that, these, these are these are intelligent people who have a a a cause so they're trying they're trained yeah. in activism and they activism also... all uh, do you know what i said before how if you actually look there's a spike in 501 c3 c4 so these non-profit um these non-profit organizations were very much the the realm of right-wing think tanks so the academy was so left-wing that was performing the function of a right-wing think uh, like a left-wing think tank so they didn't kind of need it right and so in in response to that you have all these kind of right-wing think tanks popping up with with phil philanthropic money being pushed into it and so they'd created this kind of standard for non-profit organizations that were just getting philanthropic money and so something happened around that 2010 point uh, where you see this big spike and they're like, hold on, that's a that's a game I can play. 
I can create non-profit organizations around my activism and around my internal grievances. And all of a sudden, there's this grievance industry that's like popping up and we can, train, we can train your people not to... There's a shakedown element of this, right? They go in there and go, hey, you're racist. And you've got a racism problem in your organization. They're like, really? We didn't actually think we had a racism problem. Yeah, look, there's a, there's a big racism problem. We're going to have to train you all. It's going to be 100,000 bucks. Yeah. And so there's this weird shakedown kind of, <laughs> we'll, we, we'll get into the sub, subconscious of all your employees and make sure they're not racist because that will... And oh, you, you actually God. hear it. You hear this, this uh, equity creates money like this this is like an equitable business it's a profitable business <laughs> what are you talking about that's the only part that i haven't totally nailed down yet too right is that it's like the most to, to use the slang term it's like the most bougie marxist movement i've ever seen in my life it's like hmm. communism yeah. but but like super elite yeah, yeah. Don't lobbyist wrong, communism right? And, yeah, lobbyists coming. I'm not here to shit on PhDs, though. So, but I want to say another thing is we're not stupid people. When we go to PhD school for like a million years and, and sink our lives and our soul, and let me tell you what, I'm just going to put this out there. I don't want pity. This is what it's about. They don't give those damn things away. I know Mike said they print them. They don't give the. They're hard to earn. They they break you psychologically. Most people who get PhDs are broken psychologically on the on the backside. It is not a pleasant. I'd process. say that the people in the grievance industry are probably more psychologically broken on the front side. And the, well, yeah, the and the backside based on other factors. But but you do all this because you we're not stupid. You know. You're doing this to get an elite job, to become an elite person. You're going to work in academia. You're going to work in a think tank. You're going to work in government. You're not going to get some shit job. So that's the whole point, right? That's why you do this. Everybody knows that the academic tenure job is the cushy deal, allegedly, where, you know, all of, I mean, everybody, in fact, even knows that professor who, like, lost their marbles because they got a divorce or something and they, they, like, fell off a little bit. They just stopped grading all their papers and they, like, don't really show up to work or, like, I had a guy in one of my classes to one of my 600 level classes, which are already kind of seminar-ish anyway. And he was just like, I'll give anybody an A in this class. You either you have two choices. You either do all the homework and get good grades or you go on this crazy backwoods hike with me this Saturday. And if you go with me, you get an A in the class automatically. And it's like, everybody has at least one of those professors hmm. when you go through PhD level. It's like he's gone through, te he's tenured. They can't get rid of him and he's just nuts. And so it's like, you have that vision of like the, well, if I don't really want to work, ever i can do that mm -hmm. and so it's like there's this view that you get this super elite i'm not saying that everybody wants to be lazy but i'm saying there's this view that there's a super elite super high status job on the other side of a phd and so when you get out with a phd that maybe was a little bit like there's too many of them the academic departments produce too many of them that leaving the academic job market behind there's like psychological regret there's like this weird like i lost my my tick my golden ticket there's all kinds of pressure that's mm -hmm. going to lead these people to like well I, as mike just said i can make the best of it in the nonprofit realm i can you know put my talent and, and, and well, not, not only that not only that think about this there's mm -hmm. the social status of being a you're going to get this divinity role within the culture yeah, when you're an activist like we we give a lot of social status to people who are remediating racism or whatever and so Within my own industry of arts and entertainment, you can very much see the old guard realize that every kid, they used to be in control of $200,000 cameras and there was only like 10 of them in the country here in Australia. And so 
in order to make anything that had to go to the screen, you had to go through this 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 apprenticeship and through through uh, kind of set channels. And all of a sudden, the internet comes and all this technology comes, and there's there's kids that are you can do oh, like not nice. doing like teenage kids that are creating awesome stuff that, that yeah. that's all of a sudden the value of their career i think of it like remember pilots and air hostesses when air travel first came out they were like the gods it was like oh this taa these beautiful people i'm like what a glamorous industry and now you've got like tiger air where they're just where they're glorified uh garbage men on on um on the plane. So all of a sudden, the status goes to it just disappears from this entertainment Hollywood industry. And you see that in the films, like they're all kind of homage to old old Hollywood because they know it's dying. And so the the status has gone down. And then you've got people who are kind of motivated by that that status who mm. want to find a new new source of meaning, a new source of of, of rank in the society. And so all of a sudden oh there's this enterprise where we can change the world and get rid of racism hmm. and i can be part of that inside I, my job that will separate me from the masses who are who are taking away all my um status i take responsibility <laughs> it's like the whole i take responsibility <laughs> do you think that there could I'm, be a um it seems like if status is in short supply, and, and this uh, this stuff gives you status, it gives you meaning, it gives you purpose, it gives you status. Do you think that there's a, a possibility of a uh, universal basic status income that everybody can just get a part of? And 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 well, I mean, on that on that point, is I'm, I'm in I'm in building social media platforms, and you you realize that uh, social media is is status as a service. And so this is this is why you see this huge spike in well, potentially one of the many reasons you see a huge spike in the evangelical enterprise that goes on with this ideology around 2012, because that's when viral videos, Kony 2012, that's the first time viral videos. And we started to realize the power of social media and people started to build brands and come in and to move into this kind of huge global status game. And social media evolved to a point at which we all kind of know now, anyone that's on the back end building these things, we know that social media is status as a service. I mean, think about and it. If, like- if, if, you, if, if you think about market value of like every, like there are billions of people all trying to climb this status yeah. game. Yeah. And then all, all over there, there's this, there's this uh, moral yeah. kind of resource yeah. that I can then use in order to get, uh, notch up my, my status within the community. And, then, and that's that why you see 200,000 votes group. on an absolutely idiotic statement that has a moral value. Like people are, yeah, are yeah. voting for the moral, not necessarily the sense-making. Um, exactly. Uh, like on Twitter. And, and if you, if you, if you realize something about critical theory, I know I have to drag it back to the theory because that's my job. Please, um, please. The critical theory, if I were to like, hey, Jim, meme critical theory in like the simplest way that everybody can understand it, it it's two words. Critical theory equals hot take. That's it. It's hot takes. Oh, it's a hot and take. And hot takes. It's like a hot, hot take pocket. Is definition. It is hot, Ben. It gets 200,000 retweets. It gets okay. a million likes when some, you know, high school or college student or whatever it was, just some, I think it's just some chick. And she, like, literally, just some chick with a Twitter account. And she's like, Something about, you know, going off to school. Our parents get mad because they send us off to school and we get educated to come back and tell them that they're racist, lol. And it gets like a million likes, right? So it's a, that's a hot take. And 
anybody can make one of those and in fact they're cheap and easy to make i wrote all these papers with pete and helen that are you know you can just kind of cook these up at any level with not a whole lot of work um (laughs) and so the hot take though has this real propensity to go viral and as mike knows doing digilante for example the hot take video which totally loses context you know we could name a million examples of a hot take video can just go viral like crazy because it taps those emotional responses faster than it taps their, the the okay. rational response yeah. that says hey what really happened here let's pull yeah. out the details so yeah. you might have one of these crazy videos where you know some clearly racist incident happened and it gets 500,000 likes and retweets on Twitter or Insta or whatever yeah. and then you know, the story comes out finally, and it was like, well, actually, that was a dude that was totally whacked out on drugs, you know, or something like that that totally explains what was going on, and that gets like 200 because it's, it's yeah. boring, yeah. right? It doesn't satisfy those emotional tickers. And so that is actually a gigantic dynamic in how yeah. the social media aspect, stuff that goes viral isn't always hot takes, but hot mm. takes have a higher probability of going viral, and critical theory is perfectly suited to hot takes. Yeah. Mm. Uh, that's are why we, clickbait was a thing. That are was, we in uh, the midst um, of hot take the revolution? Is that what's going on? We are in the midst of hot <laughs> stand take. aside and shit. It's, it's, I've, I've been. That's how I understand it. Like yeah. it's, it's either hot take, but it's always taking a, an elevated that's, role. So you stand. So you you view something, and this is what the like. If you look at everything that they're doing in academia, in in these academic su- subjects, it's just essentially stand aside from something and shit on it. So you 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 point to, to something, a group or something that happens, you somehow establish yourself as outside of that thing. It can be anything. Better it can be than. Food. Better yeah. than, yes. And then you turn around and you shit on it somehow. So it's stand aside and shit. And, um, it's like when the hyenas crap on the thing that they're going to eat so that other animals won't eat it. <laughs> Is that a thing? That, that's, they do. That's, yeah, a, that's thing. a thing. Okay. That's a thing. <laughs> I mean, and so, Mike, those are the hottest hot takes, right? Yeah. The steaming. hottest hot takes are the steaming dumps. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. It's, you know, like the person saying, oh, you go to college and you learn to tell your parents that they're racist and they don't like it, lol. Think about the layers of hotness, the hot steaming dump that that is. You yeah. have to stand aside from your family relationship, from like the norms of society, what an education is about. You have to set us, I'm, I'm better than all that. You know, yeah. and then. Okay. That thing gets a million likes off of some account that's not even that big. Or then this other type of hot take, like I saw one today that some guy sent me the thing. I get a bajillion tweets sent to me, and it's like, black people have the right to burn down a country that they built. And it's like 500,000 retweets, <laughs> 700,000 likes. And it's and then like the comment under it that he adds is, I muted the comments, and if you disagree with yeah. me, you can yell at a wall because you're a racist. And it's just like... <laughs> That's the most, like, you've stepped aside from all of, like, civil society to dump on it because you have some grievance that's yeah. not even wholly true. Yeah, but but how do we... Uh, okay, so going through my Twitter timeline, I, I have to constantly police myself from entering into an argument. Like, I'm not there to argue. I'm not there to argue. I'm looking for material for me to create something with. That's my rules for social media. I'm there to be creative. Um, but, but you see these hot takes that go completely massively viral, and you despair for humanity. So the question mm-hmm. is, how you guys are looking at something that, that's twisted in its nature that is now 
gone viral that is now potentially taking over Western society. How do you maintain your optimism? If you if you do maintain your optimism, or I guess you go Albert Camus and you just call it all absurd, which is another hot take in and of itself. Mm, yeah, it yeah. is. Postmodern no, condition I, really is is a is a hot take. Is the postmodern condition, but anyway, it is. I do so. I keep my optimism by talking to people who aren't like that connected to it, and they're just like, "What the hell is this?" No, <laughs> I mean, really, and I I really. I think we will start to, it's like when TV first started really blasting, it was like really a big threat for propaganda. Mm. And then it wasn't until we invented cable news. And all of a sudden it's like, well, this is the news, you know? Yeah. And, and then it's like, now people are like, now people are actually starting to get it. Like cable news is bullshit. And so sooner or later, more and more people like you figured it out. Mike is really good about it. I'm, you know, aware of it that it's like, you know, that which is on social media I used to actually have a norm for myself, which was like, if you see something going crazy, stop yourself and ask why. Why? What's re- what really happened there? I think that you know this is all new, and we have it's again the same lesson I talked about very early on in this this meeting, that um, you have to screw a thing up before you realize how to not do it. So we're learning. We also are learning how to handle this. Right. Mm-hmm. This is a new technology, a new paradigm for information, and we will whether it takes. 10 years, whether it takes two years, whether it takes 100 years, we we are learning how to handle it. The trick is not destroying ourselves in the process. Yeah. And there are enough not too online people who don't live in that headspace who are so far, so far anyway, who are like, so what? Well, that's so why that, I, I, get, I get concerned when, because Instagram's this kind of the Shire, it's this lovely place that I go to to enjoy my turnips and parties and and bum pitches and just puppies and this lovely place and then all of a sudden i look up and there's all these political orcs streaming in and so to uh, when that starts happening because the, the twitter's kind of designed for this uh <laughs> you know these these ang- the angry battle, battle people, of helms deep angry right word that's people, what the, the twitter people, is the power hungry people it's yeah. kind of it is it is like that's Mordor me. a bit more, a bit more. It is um, more. <laughs> but then you go, you go, you when you're in these other spaces, and then the politics start streaming, and you're like, oh, <laughs> this is this is bigger than I thought. That this isn't isn't being this isn't contained as much as as it was um, a short time ago. And so, I mean, you know, I try to. You should always be optimistic. I mean, even you know, even if you're caught in a concentration camp, it's better to be optimistic than not. I mean, Um, even if you look at like, and you know, I don't totally agree with Jordan Peterson, of course, but if you look at Jordan Peterson's, like what he got, people tried to set him on fire for the most over the past several years, he'd be like, we don't know about women in the workplace, you know, or whatever. And it's like, maybe that wasn't a good idea. High heels are flirting. You know, it's like, oh shit, Jordan, (laughs) what are you saying, man? But there's this real element though, that, that second wave feminism introduced women into the workplace and just like I don't want to say that women being in the workplace is equivalent to inventing the nuclear bomb, but it is a massive change. And there is an element where Peterson was right that we haven't quite figured everything out. And the tendency in human history, and this is my hugest like 
anger at the critical theory and especially at Foucault is that we get it wrong first and learn better and that's how we do so right now it's undeniable that there's this weird female energy like toxic femininity I don't want to call it female it's toxic femininity it's like this mean girl's spirit to a lot of this social justice stuff and of course I said it was black feminism it's something feminism it's something feminism it's, there's this mean girl spirit behind it that's this weird toxic angry feminine femininity in there and we've never had a period in, in at least Western history where that had the space to become dominant. And so in a sense, I don't want to say control it like misogyny, like Cape Man down girl. I want to say we've not figured out how to integrate that mm. fully. And so you and also, also people, the lessons people, of history, uh, people. Though, but the lessons of history are we will see the excesses before we see the containment. Yeah. 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 We're going to drop the nuclear bomb before we're like, oh, shit, conquest yeah. is yeah. over. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 and, and that might just, be we also happened. we also don't have frameworks as many frameworks to understand because the feminist movement's done a lot of work to draw lines around masculine power, right? Expressions of masculine power, and we're, so the, our our cultural landscape has a lot of tropes, uh, ways cons conceptual structures to understand the excesses of masculine power like to point it out and go that's probably not a good thing or you're you're that you're that lame boss guy is telling everyone everything to do that's that's a shit thing to be but there's not as there's not as many drawn around the uh the the pathological expressions of feminine power which is often goes to the group right it twists the moral structure in order to kill someone's reputation right. um so a ma- masculine power is maybe someone who builds some kind of economic structure to 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 extract to resources tie you in and then just takes what they want from you you know hmm. might might be uh kind of physical physically dominating you or something like that there's these horrible kind of expressions of of dominance and power but the fe- feminine one is is often going to the group and twisting twisting the kind of prevailing moral structure in order to um, hurt someone's reputation or something like that. And it's not Let clear me... that we have enough enough frameworks and stories to explain that that's not a good thing uh, circulating right. through right. through the culture for us hmm. to be able to point that out and go, hey, that sucks. Let's let's not do that anymore. Let me pull up Peter Bogosian right here and talk to the camera for a second. You know, like, <laughs> you know are, you, are you listening? No, but, uh, yeah. Uh, are you sitting you down? Are you ready? <laughs> are you ready? My name is Peter Bogosian and I am livid. Uh, no, uh, that's a real quote. Um, so, but no, I want to actually look behind the curtain. Mike and I have actually been having that conversation for a while and we've always end up kind of kind of bookmarking that conversation with well you can't say it in public because nobody's quite ready for that yet so i want to talk to the camera i want to talk to the viewer not necessarily just to you guys that there's this really weird liberating sense that these people going nuts has created that there's this new that this is another source of optimism there's a new ability to be frank about this you don't have to be mean you don't have to be rude you don't have to mischaracterize it you don't have to straw man it you don't have to like dump on it there is an ability to be like these people are taking over cities you can be frank about it now let's not like play kid gloves and it, like i said if we have a science wars 2.0 that arises if we have people start to speak up they don't have to be like troll army where yeah, just fools yeah. are speaking yeah. up saying crazy stuff regular yeah. normal people can say wait no there is stuff here that's yeah. wrong 
and we're good people and we're not going to put up with this and here are good reasons why and that yeah. door is now open yeah. where it has not been open before and now that like i just decided whether for good reasons or for bad that i was going to go all in i'm fighting this once the yeah. riot started on twitter i think I, and i, think I know I'm that similar I, as well i don't want to i don't want to there's all these private conversations it. that you know what screw it i'm just going to be public about it now i'm you not tweeted it man you told the guy just say it it's a form of relief just start yeah. saying it you'll feel relief and it's true there's so much stuff that yeah. should be said that's fair yeah. legitimate not evil not mean criticism of this yeah. that nobody has said nobody's dared to say it yeah. and it can be said now because they decided that they're going to people burn love city. hearing it like this there's especially now there's all these my spike in following as soon as i went you know what fuck it i'm just going to start saying it like i would in private in public yeah. And then all of a sudden, there's all this audience. I would, I'm like, holy shit, this, this is some kind of ma magic. I went up 15,000 followers since the riot started. And a lot of it is because I, you know, I do have the, I've done the homework, but a lot of yeah. it's also yeah, because it's yeah, like, yeah. you know what? I'm just going to speak frankly. It's like yeah. somebody asked me a week or two ago on Twitter, how do you fight this? Before the riots broke out, I think, because it was, I think it was sanity time still. Okay. And I was like, tell the truth, keep telling the truth. Continue to tell the truth. That's it. At the bottom of, at the end of the day, that's actually how you defeat this. This thing is allergic to the truth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just keep telling the truth. Yeah, I'm thinking that, you know, in its earlier incarnation, it was kind of uh, the SJW is no longer SJW, and and in uh, in SJW was wrestling with this kind of YouTube mockery society where they make compilation mm -hmm. videos and do really snarky takedowns. And we're it's no longer SJWs anymore. This is the world, and it needs yeah. it needs yeah. stern adults telling it to to sit down that that's what it yeah. needs it just it just stern adults saying we're, we're not you're, you're not allowed to do that this is your limit exactly yeah this is and this i am, very I am a good guy. person like i i i I'm occupy on the moral, the moral high, high ground here i know yes. who i am i'm not i'm not racist um i'm i'm not sexist i just i'm just not and there's there's like not. endless you know? endless proof in my life that that's the case and so I'm you know liberal. what if, if if you're going to paint me as that then go ahead it, it I, I have nothing else to lose i don't fit in this shit culture you're making anyway so i'm just going to be honest <laughs> helen, about it. You know, helen says the liberal view of like homosexuality is some people are gay get over it it's same same thing some people are black get over it some people are are you know whatever pick your favorite thing get over it that's the liberal view right some people are different than you are get over it mm -hmm. well i that's how i can you know it's like screw you i'm not sexist no i'm just not okay some people are women get over it i'm not homophobic some people are gay get over it you know some people are women and we can actually <laughs> some people are women about about 51 percent of them just short short of 51 percent of them are women i know some you're um, blowing my I mind have, james i have women friends uh, <laughs> i do some women like me a few very small number but it is more than one i think maybe um, but no, I mean, we, we can occupy the moral high ground on this, right? And what you said about about occupying, you know, just some stern adults saying, you know, as Pete would phrase it, no more kids table. Well, you go to the kids table, the adults are talking. Mm -hmm. So here's some, some outlines for that in a liberal society. We demand the following thing. You hear that from the, the, the woke left all the time. No, 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 no. We live in a, we live in a democracy. You don't demand shit. Shut up. 
go formulate your argument go formulate your case bring it to the proper structures we, we don't demand things here okay and so like adults showing up and yeah. saying simple things like that we live in a free country we don't give into demands yeah there are there are there are structures you know like structures petition to change the structures they're really good at changing structures they shouldn't complain about this they don't need to make demands they already know how to infect and be insidious and in structure why are they making demands it makes yeah. no sense so you know setting boundaries like that you're a racist no i'm not thank you for playing you know or <laughs> you're a racist yeah. i already joined a cult I'm in a different cult. I don't need your cult. You know, it's like a very like, like, you know, have you heard about the Lord? I'm a Mormon. You know, you just freak out. I'm already in a, I'm a different one of those things. I'm Catholic. I can't join yours. And they're like, oh, okay. It's like, you can do that. Right. Like, no, I thank you. I don't need, I don't, I don't need to witness Jehovah. People on the left, that's, that's liberal. Like, I think that once you figure out what the liberal ethics are, you can go, oh, well, that's where the good stuff is actually. If you're, if you're intuit, if you have that moral intuition that the liberals have, the people on the left have, um, if you actually go and do some homework and figure out what liberal ethics are, you're like, oh, that's where all the good stuff is. What the hell are you talking about? And then if yeah. they come at you, you're like, no, 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 it's all right. I'm liberal. Go away. You can exactly. play, huh. play your uh, religious music and, and for, you know, play those games el- elsewhere. You know, go away. It's like I saw that video went viral. Again, speaking of viral videos, you don't really know what happened where it was like some Trump kid wearing a Trump hat. And I say kid, he's probably like 20, 19, I don't know. And then some woman with, you know, like one of the stereotypical haircuts. And you know how this went. And he's like, he's he's like Trump, 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 or, you know, MAGA, MAGA, or, you know, lock her up. I don't know, something. And then the, the you know, what the one on the other side, she just comes up to his face and like, ah! because he's gonna like block out the sound and just screams in his face and he's like trump 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 and she's like ah! and it's just like the, the back and forth and it was like dialogue is really, and like all the rest of us can, can can actually we can actually look at that and say you know what uh-uh. You know, embarrassing and lame. Saying, man that's it's so whatever, pathetic whatever that is just you do that do that in a quiet corner or you know away from us like that sucks the hard part, though, and Benjamin, this is kind of important with a lot of the work you've done. Um, the hard part, though, it, it, it was core to the Evergreen story. It was core, if you guys know Lisa Bildy's story with the the Bencher uh, Law Society in, uh, in Ontario. It's core to what happened in the Evergreen Task Force, or not Evergreen, sorry, uh, Washington Equity Task Force. Is that in, in so many things you've documented, Benjamin, it's, it's been the case. This is like all this crap happens in these administrative meetings that like six people show up to and like six of them are social justice people mm-hmm. so liberals who are busy and have better things to do are actually going to have to start deciding we don't get to be so comfortable anymore mm-hmm. we don't need to be uncomfortable by confronting our racism yeah, yeah, we need yeah, to be yeah, uncomfortable yeah, yeah. by joining the school board yeah mm-hmm. we need to go sign up mm-hmm. for these committees that these show activists up, who literally up. have nothing better to do yeah go to the school board meeting you know, get informed enough about what white fragility is, show up to the school board meeting and say, I don't want this crap. Talk to my kids. I don't want this crap in my teachers, you know, and people are going to have to do it. It's not going to fix itself. It's not going to fix itself. Yeah. No, no. no. And and some people are going to have to decide, crap, I'm going to sign up for that committee. Um, I'm glad I, I have to end because I have to attend to house things, but I'm glad we didn't end on criticizing feminism. That was like a pretty, we were, we were, we were venturing into that, that territory, but we drew back. Do you want to go back to it? No, no. Like we drew back. <laughs> Do you want to hear why women are the root of all evil then? <laughs> hey, whoa, 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 whoa. 
I have woman friends. We, we have to. We have to. Let, let, let's just so we're not yeah, but... seen as kind of. We'll wrap up, but I just want to say one thing on that is feminism is like a bus with all these different fields and ideas, and it's got feminism written on the side. And there are some intersectionals up the back licking the windows and everyone's going, well, that's a disabled bus. But it's not. You get on the bus and there are different... There are different... Conversations going on. Conversations, ideas, fields. It's like it's a full bus and it's rich and interesting and I like the people at the front who are in the liberal feminist camp. But even they're they're pissed off at the people that are in Mm. the back being crazy and doing really, really weird stuff. And so... To give you an idea, the bus analogy is good. Helen and I, when we wrote the chapter in Cynical Theories, you know, coming out, Mike, you would have probably seen this. Um, Helen wrote the first draft. I was like, Helen, we need a chapter on feminism. And she's like, I'm on it. And then she writes this chapter on fe- she says She sends me this thing. And she's like, I've tracked like 27 different brands of feminism through all of history. I'm like, no, Helen, <laughs> too many. But there are. There are very many different schools of feminist thought, some of which are far more helpful than others, Mm -hmm. some of which are very helpful in fact. Mm -hmm. And so we should not just crap on feminism. It's easy to make the jokes and say that I have one woman friend that that accepts me beyond all uh, understanding of of reality, but... um, yeah, you, it is true. you guys were bringing up the fact that we, we it is complicated and we haven't really figured out our society is a work in progress. This uh, this these cynical theories are, are selling us a solution to everything, which is that it, it all sucks and we should tear it down. I think that we can disregard those, even though it's pretty complex. You might have to hire a specialist to really untangle it. But there is a lot of work to be done and we don't have it all figured out. There's a lot of work in the humanities, in gender studies, feminism, literary criticism, which is my field, that actually is uh, is at risk of being mired by all this other stuff. And, and there's a lot of work to be done going forward to rescuing other forms of theory from the cynical kind. Yeah, I'm sorry that I said that your field's basically toast, man. It's done. I know. I, well, the, how do you think I found my way onto YouTube? I had well, to, you know, <laughs> I thought it was your good looks and charm myself. <laughs> well, <laughs> wait, but but you guys do have a book coming out, Cynical Theories, you and Helen? Is that yeah. that's releasing right now? August twenty fifth. Everybody okay. was freaking out. It was supposed to come out May fifth, and oh. then there was this. I don't know. I guess like sometimes it's on, sometimes it's off. Depends on what your politics are, I guess. But there's this pandemic. Yeah. Anyway, the publishers that not not publishers companies. I should say the printers, book printers decided, nope, we're non essential. They shut down for months, so oh. no books have been able to be printed. So. It comes out when it comes out, okay. but it's being printed now. It has been sent to print. They are printing copies, and it sh- maybe will ship some copies. Will ship early. I don't know, but August twenty fifth is the slated okay. date. The goal of cynical theories is to explain the history of this is a very complicated movement, the social justice movement, if you will, very complicated, deep history in academia, deep history in philosophy. We explain the postmodern vein of that which is the part that basically made it invincible from criticism because it denies objective truth mm-hmm. and mike you have eventually a feature-length film on this stuff coming mm-hmm. out is there any uh can you give us any clues as to when or the whole industry got flipped on its head with oh, the wow. uh with the pandemic so i don't know what 
path we have to distribution. So we're just refiguring that out and um, I'm just chipping away. I might even try to tie in recent events into the film, <laughs> but um, there's no clear end point there. So just okay. keep, keep an eye on the, on, the, uh, on the YouTube channel. Unfortunately for the reader, and fortunately for me who didn't want to have to write more stuff, um, Cynical Theories actually went to print just before the riot started, so we cannot actually talk about the riots in Cynical Theories. Yeah. Uh, if there's a second edition, we'll probably have to add a forward or afterward indicating the manifestation of this of Cynical Theory in reality. I'm uh, being poked, poked and prodded to get the hell out of here, so we best, uh, yeah. we yeah, best wrap, wrap this up. It well, is midnight here. Yeah, so. uh, say goodbye to all your fans and that you love them, or, or at least accept their love somehow, guys. I accept your love. <laughs> Was that convincing? Did I do it? <laughs> I take responsibility for my fans. Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.